This is Audible. A champion figure skater describes her feeling of utter absorption when her performance is going well. It was just one of those programs that clicked. I mean, everything went right, everything felt good. It's just such a rush, like you could feel it go on and on, like you don't want it to stop because it's going so well. And a famous composer describes this feeling when his work is going well. You're in an ecstatic state to such a point that you feel as though you almost don't exist. I have experienced this time and time again. My hand seems devoid of myself, and I have nothing to do with what is happening. I just sit there watching it in a state of awe and wonderment, and the music just flows out by itself. If you've ever been completely absorbed in an activity, so that your energies are focused and concentrated and time seems to fly by, then you probably have experienced the state of optimal experience known as flow. Nightingale Conant is proud to present best-selling author Mihai Csikszentmihalyi here to share with you his insights on flow, living at the peak of your abilities. Most people, when they think about what will make them happy, think that having um, a lot of money and uh, having a nice house, having uh, two cars or whatever, is what will finally make the life full and happy. And generally, the expectation that material well-being is the source of happiness is very widespread. But uh, in every historical period, those who thought about the issue realized that um, material well-being by itself does not make anybody happy. Money or power or even health are not the sources of happiness. Uh, they are useful, they make you feel better at the moment, but somehow as human beings we have this built-in dissatisfaction with what we have and what we own. We always want more, we always try to get more money, more power, more comfort. And unless we learn how to moderate these insatiable demands that we have built into our nervous system by the genes, unless we learn how to enjoy the moment as it goes by, unless we enjoy the passage of time, the activities we do as they occur, instead of always wishing for more, we are going to be disillusioned and disappointed at the end of life. Therefore, the kind of happiness I'm talking about is the happiness that comes not from owning things, not from trying to achieve things in the future, but the happiness that comes from the everyday activities we do, the happiness that comes from relishing the moment, from enjoying our interaction with the environment, with people around us with the kind of tasks that we are attempting to do. And that's a very different type of emphasis. It's the happiness from the ongoing use of our skills, the ongoing living, and the happiness that comes from living rather than from desiring to get something in the future. What is flow? Flow is what describes this peculiar feeling of complete involvement with what you're doing that comes when you're paying attention to a goal, when you are reading the feedback that you get from the goal. For instance, a tennis player who is so attentive to every strike of the racket 
and who is paying attention to how the opponent returns the ball. This uh, concentration and what goes on in the moment is the experience of flow that I have been studying for the past 30 years, more or less. There are two ways in which flow enriches a person's life. First of all, it uh, makes everyday activities that otherwise would be a chore or a source of conflict or misery more enjoyable. So that even the things that we don't want to or don't like to do in everyday life can be improved and made more enjoyable. The second reason why flow is a source of enrichment in your life is that it helps you to organize, to uh, synthesize, to harmonize the elements of your life, both your time alone and time with friends, time with family, time with work, so that all of it supports each other, so that you don't feel kind of torn and conflicting, but you feel that you are working on all cylinders. Everything is aimed at the same purpose and the same meaning. And that way, the entirety of a person's life can become a flow experience. For instance, one of the people that struck me most as having the ability to find flow in their lives was a 60-year-old worker in one of the factories in the south side of Chicago. He was building railroad cars in a huge hangar-like uh, factory under the most uh, unpleasant conditions. It was uh, very cold in the winter, hot in the summer. But this man, who had only four-year education, his name was Joe, was uh, among the most happy people that I ever met. He was famous in his uh, factory for being able to fix almost any piece of machinery that went wrong, whether it was an, a forklift or an electronic controller for the welding uh, machines that they used there. And uh, everybody said, if uh, Joe retires, we might as well close the factory because he keeps everything going. Well, this man never wanted to become a foreman because he just enjoyed uh, fixing the machines, and so he was at the lowest rung of his factory. But um, he was more important than almost anyone else among the three, 400 people who worked there. What was most interesting to me is that uh, Joe had uh, both two more lots uh, uh, surrounding his house, and there he has built a um, rock garden where he has planted um, all kinds of uh, strange plants that he has uh, brought there from all around the country. And he was very proud of his garden. But um, to make sure that it would work, um, that the plants would prosper, he has built this uh, underground watering system. And then he had the idea of uh, making the sprays of water that came out of uh, his watering system so that they would produce rainbows. So he machine-tooled some spray system that would make a fine mist so that he could sit in the back of his porch and watch rainbows uh, when he turned on the water. 
And then he found out since he spent most of his time in the garden in the evening after the sun went down, he developed a lighting system that would make um, uh, rainbows even at night. So he could sit on his porch and push one button and the water would go off another button, the lights would go on, and then he would have rainbows all around him. This man with a fourth grade education had developed a way of working and a way of living which were all of a piece and which made him and his wife serene and feeling that they had a life that was not only enjoyable but which contributed something to making the world somewhat better and somewhat more meaningful. My interest in how to improve the quality of life came, uh, I think, from my own experience during World War II, when um, as a child I saw so many adults being completely destroyed by the tragic events of the war. And yet I saw that among all of those adults that were essentially destroyed by the war, there were always one or two who seemed to have been able to keep their sanity, keep their uh, courage, who were able to help others, who were able to give a sense of um, purpose and meaning to those around them. And I just uh, became curious, how do you get to be a person like that? I was scared as uh, I was 10 years old towards the end of the war, and we saw the whole culture crumbling around. So it became, um, in a way, an important issue for me to discover what you can do to stop this kind of madness that seized people during the war and how you can build lives that are more fulfilling and enjoyable. So at the end of the war, I tried uh, various ways to answer that kind of question that I had, you know, how some people are able to keep their head up when most are kind of destroyed by external situations. And um, I tried that by becoming a writer. I wrote fiction. I tried to become a painter. I painted for a while. Also, I became interested in various religions, both Christianity and also some of the Eastern religions. And then uh, around the age of 16, I came across the writings of the Swiss psychologist Gustav Jung, who seemed to be dealing with the same problems of how, among all this chaos of World War II, how one could uh, recapture a sense of wholeness, a sense of purpose. So I started reading many psychologists after uh, Carl Gustav Jung, I read Freud and all the other psychologists I could lay my hands on. And I decided that that would be perhaps the way for me to understand what was going on in the world. But in Europe at that time, psychology was not a well-developed field, and I knew that in the United States, uh, psychology was much better developed. So I decided to come here, and I arrived in the United States in 1956 with the intention of learning as much as I could about psychology. 
and I enrolled at that time at the University of Chicago, which was a good choice because that university is um, in some ways very traditional. It's very interested in developing basic research, and there you learn that there is nothing more practical than a good theory. And this is something that led me all through my years of trying to get a PhD, which I finally got. And my doctoral degree was on understanding artistic creativity, how artists learn to do the kind of work that will produce an original painting or sculpture. I have been a teacher now at the university for over 22 years. And I keep trying to answer the same question, what makes people's life happier and more meaningful? How Flow Came About Originally, I studied um, what made people's lives most happy by interviewing individuals who were involved in activities that seem to be self-rewarding, like artists, musicians, chess masters, uh, rock climbers, and so forth. But after a while, I realized that interviews, although they gave a general information about how things were, they weren't precise enough. They weren't giving you the kind of moment-by-moment texture of daily life which I needed to access if I wanted to understand how everyday life could be made more enjoyable. So I and my students at the university developed this method that we ended up calling the ESM, short for Experience Sampling Method. And this method involves giving people electronic pages and a booklet of answer sheets. And then we would send a radio signal about 10 times a day to these pagers. And when the pager went off, when it started beeping, the person takes out the booklet and writes down what he or she's doing, where they are, who they are with. And then the circle answers, for instance, how happy you are on a seven-point scale or how much you're concentrating or how well you feel about yourself how would you feel about what you're doing, and so forth. So, in a day, you get about eight to ten of these answers. After a week, you get almost like um, a film strip or um, snapshots of daily life for people, which are gathered at the moment, not afterwards, not when you think back on it, but as you do the things that you do in daily life, you know, get up in the morning, drive to work, etc., So you sample these experiences at the time they're happening, and this way you don't get as much distortion, you don't get the kind of forgetting, selective forgetting that you get when you interview people. What produces flow? Clarity of goals is one of the first things that people tell you in connection with what produces flow. I don't mean just long-term goals. For instance, uh, suppose you are playing, let's say, a game of chess. Well, your ultimate goal is to win the game, perhaps. Otherwise, you wouldn't be playing in the first place. But more than that goal, the important thing is that you have 
little goals buried into the activity from moment to moment. You know exactly how each move would create an advantage on your side. So you know how you want to develop your pieces. You know how you want to control the board. These constant knowing of what you want to do is very important in all flow activities. Think about playing a piece of music, for instance. Your goal is not just to perform a song or a, or a piece, but it is moment by moment you know what notes you want to hit and you know what chords you want to play. And so this clarity of what you want to accomplish is extremely important. Activities that make it so clear what you have to do, we could call flow activities. These are activities which are, in some sense, created so that they can produce flow. There would be no other reason to play tennis except that it's enjoyable, and therefore it's an activity that has very clear goals. In everyday life, it's not so clear. At work, at home, the goals are not very clear. So it's up to us to know how to build moment-by-moment -moment goals in what we are doing. We should be able to build goals into our work day, into our relation with other people, or even the most uh, mundane and routine activities, like getting up in the morning and brushing your teeth. It sounds silly, but if you have a set of goals for how to brush your teeth or take a shower, whether you should shave first and then take the shower or vice versa, each of these little meaningless activities, if they are built around a set of goals that you decide on, that you think make it most purposeful and efficient, then doing even these things that usually are a drag, they're not enjoyable at all. They, you think it's wasted time. Most of people feel that the kind of things that you have to do in the interstices of your work life are, are just meaningless, you know. But if you build goals around them, they can become more enjoyable. How flow helps you enjoy life. If you keep busy just because you have nothing else to do and there is no feedback that you get from what you're doing because whatever you do is equally important, then you don't enjoy what you're doing. But if you set these goals and you try actually to do the best as you try to reach them and you figure out whether you are getting closer to what you wanted to accomplish or not, then even the activity itself becomes more rewarding. Because let's face it, I mean, in our life, we have three major things we have to do in our waking time. I mean, one-third of everybody's life, more or less, has to go to some form of productive activity, work. Okay, that's fixed, more or less. There's another third, roughly, there is free time, leisure time, where we can do whatever we want. And then there is one-third of our life which has to go to so-called maintenance activities. These are washing yourself, dressing, eating, resting, shopping, commuting. For most people, this one-third of life is wasted because it's done kind of as a, simply a routine, as simply getting over with it. Well... There's no reason why it should be like that. It's possible that there are people who really learn to enjoy even these one-third of life that otherwise would be wasted. 
And the way they do it is by making a game out of it, by trying to do the best, uh, try to beat the time, for instance. I mean, to do it most efficiently, most effectively, dressing with the fewest um, times that you have to run back and forth from the closet to get your dress or or, uh, your shoes or whatever. Try to do things with efficiency and elegance so that you are in control even of that time that would be wasted. When you can begin to do it, it's not very different from trying to write a poem or or, um, do a drawing because it's under your control. You have goals for how well it should be done. And then um, it won't become as enjoyable as playing a symphony or, or, you know, uh, sailing in the South Seas, but it will be, it will give you that little extra lift of knowing that you are not wasting that time completely, that you are in control of it and you are trying to do the best with it. How flow can change your life. So what I hope to achieve in the rest of these talks is to give you an idea of what we can expect to learn from this concept of flow. First of all, it will be a process that will make each day more rich, more intense and meaningful by transforming everyday experiences into more flow-like experiences. In order to do that, we have to first learn and to master the eight components of enjoyment that people all over the world report when their experiences are particularly enjoyable. Then we can start talking about how to develop an autotelic personality, a personality that knows how to transform experiences that to others will seem ordinary or even full of conflict into experiences that are rewarding, when the doing of any act will become its own reward. We will talk about how to harness the power of concentration, how to control the body and its senses so that things like walking down the street or eating a meal or cooking a meal are experienced as rewarding, how to enjoy art and music as well as athletics, all the various components of our physical activity which can be so enjoyable and so often get wasted Then we'll talk about how to transform work into flow experiences, how to make the different aspects of work, the kind of concentration that's required, the human elements of relationship with bosses and co-workers, how to try to improve these so that you feel in control of them and you feel that doing them is not just a waste of time, but it is a rewarding, enjoyable experience. Many of us feel that being alone is a tremendous waste of time. Most people feel depressed, lonely when they are alone. And yet, solitude can be the most rewarding time of our day, when we are really in control, when we can do the kind of things we really want to do. And yet, most of us feel so cut off from life when we are alone that we don't know how to use this time 
which is so potentially enjoyable, the time alone. At the same time, many of our relationships with people are a source of conflict rather than a source of serenity and fulfillment. So we will talk about how to make human relationships more harmonious and satisfying. Enjoying the separate elements of life, work, play, relationships, and solitude will go a long way toward making life more full and happy. But most people need to find a unifying theme that relates the various facets of experience into a whole. Religions and value systems often perform this function. You may think of these systems of belief as the rules of an all-encompassing game, the game of life. I will deal with the question of how life themes are created and how they can bring flow into your entire existence. So, you will gain four major benefits through this program. The first is to understand how you can get control over your inner life, your attention, your moods, your willpower. This control is what you need to reach the second goal, to experience flow in your everyday life activities regardless of your external conditions. The third benefit is that you will learn to develop an increasingly complex self, a self that grows from day to day as a result of enjoyable interactions. Finally, the fourth and most ambitious result you will gain is that it will help you to put together your day-to-day -day experiences into a meaningful life, one that fills you with serenity and satisfaction. If you take even a small step in that direction, you will have taken a giant stride towards happiness. By the end of these tapes, we will have covered a very great deal of information and you will have the tools to make all of life an enjoyable flow experience. But remember that the end is just the beginning. What will make the real difference is not what I say or what you hear, but what you do to implement these ideas. At this point, I feel privileged to invite you to an exciting voyage of discovery. The discovery of how to make the most of your life. On this side, Professor Csikszentmihalyi begins by explaining to you the eight major components you need to create a flow experience. We are now ready to learn about the major components of flow. If you don't know what makes people happy, you must discover it slowly by trial and error. On the other hand, if you can find out what research has revealed about the conditions that produce flow, it will be much easier to build these conditions into your life, which will mean greater happiness for you. You have often seen the happiness on the face of children engrossed in play. You have seen the intensity on the faces of athletes trying to beat their own records. And there have been times when you too have been carried away by a feeling of exhilaration, of profound enjoyment. What makes such moments of bliss possible? Our studies suggest that people experience flow 
under very similar conditions the world over. While the specifics vary from person to person, the general principles are remarkably uniform for young and old, male and female, rich and poor. Therefore, if you learn how flow occurs and how it feels, you can enrich the quality of your life. The best way to understand flow is to look at it in terms of eight major components. These components were mentioned by almost everybody that we interviewed who enjoyed what they were doing. We interviewed chess players, we interviewed artists, composers of music, rock climbers, athletes of different sort. And when they were describing how they felt when what they were doing was really going well, they tended to mention these eight components. Not all of them, perhaps, but most of them came out in all of these descriptions. Later, we found that even people um, who were not doing this kind of elite sports, but for instance, when we started to interview people who enjoyed their job, like uh, surgeons or computer experts, programmers, they also mentioned the same eight components. Then uh, as uh, people started interviewing um, individuals in other countries, other cultures, in Japan, Australia, uh, Indonesia, they also came up with the same dimensions of the experience. So we are fairly confident now, after collecting over 8,000 interviews around the world, that these eight components really are the essential elements of what makes an experience enjoyable. So let me describe the eight major conditions that people report when they are deeply involved in an enjoyable flow experience. If you remember these eight points and you apply them to what you do every day, your life will never be the same again. Work will become more fun and more efficient. Free leisure time will be more enjoyable and meaningful. The first thing that everybody mentions as a characteristic of the kind of enjoyable activity they are doing is that they know very clearly what they have to do. In other words, the goals of the activity are clear and not conflicting and not confusing. For instance, as I mentioned also before, if you play tennis, you know exactly how to do and what you want to do. The rules and the goals are very clear. If you play chess, you know exactly what the next move should be, or at least what type of move is important for you to win. If you play a musical instrument, you know exactly what notes you want to play. In other words, you have not only an overall goal, you not only know what you want the activity to result in, but you know every minute what you want to accomplish. For instance, if you are climbing a mountain, every step of the way, you watch where you want to put your foot, where you want to put your fingers to pull yourself up. And the whole activity is very clearly focused on this series of steps or goals. 
And this is in contrast to everyday life. You know, in everyday life, we may have an overall goal. We want to accomplish something, but often the steps are not clear. You have kind of confusing, contradictory ideas of how to get there. So this clarity of goals is a very important element of an activity that is enjoyable. The second dimension, the second element of enjoyable activities that people report is that they know every moment whether what they are doing is getting them closer to the goal or not. You can summarize that by seeing that feedback is immediate. You know moment by moment how well you're doing. For instance, again, if you think of playing tennis, after hitting the ball, you know whether it went where you wanted it to go. If you play a musical instrument and you are hitting a wrong note, you know that you have uh, made a mistake. And that clarity of feedback is essential for keeping you focused on what you're doing because you get this information about how you do and you can improve, you can change your course as you move along. For instance, it was very interesting when we first started talking to people who really enjoyed their work. Surgeons were the first group. It was amazing to hear how surgeons would describe the enjoyment of surgery in terms of knowing exactly what they were doing, of getting constant feedback on their activity. If they were cutting into a surgical operation as they were cutting, they knew that they were doing well when there was no blood in the cavity, and every second, millisecond, actually, they were monitoring their progress and they were knowing, okay, I'm doing well, I'm doing well. And this keeps you focused on the activity. If you don't know how well you're doing, as we so often do in everyday life, then it's hard to keep concentrating. You say, oh, well, I don't know whether what I'm doing is really leading me anywhere, so I can relax or I get bored, I get distracted. But if you know as you move along how well you're doing, then you can focus and you can get really involved in what you're doing. So those two clear goals and immediate feedback are in many ways necessary for this whole experience to get started. Another element of activities that are enjoyable, which is very important, is that the challenges of the activity are matched with the skills of the person. In other words, what there is to do is in balance with what you can do. Think about, again, when is a game, for instance, enjoyable? Let's say playing chess, playing tennis, playing a game of cards. It's only enjoyable if your opponent is about at the same level of ability as you are. In other words, you feel that you are neither overwhelmed by the other person's ability or you are not bored because you are so much better than the other person. That kind of balance, um, kind of match between challenges and skills is typical of any activity that ends up being enjoyable. 
A job that's too demanding makes you feel stressed. A job that is below your skills makes you feel bored and you begin to get distracted again. But when a job is just on the right level or any activity that's on the right level of skills, even if at first you didn't want to do it or didn't like to do it, it eventually becomes interesting and eventually it becomes enjoyable. So a lot of people start out disliking doing something like playing the piano or um, working on a computer. The computer seems intimidating, new, overwhelming. But once you develop the skills to learn how to interact with it, then it can become enjoyable. And in fact, after a while, it can become even addictive. Uh, You don't want to stop because it's so enjoyable to do it. So this third characteristic of flow activities is that you feel that you can operate with the challenges at the right level of skills and you get slowly almost sucked into this activity, whether you like it or not. When an activity has clear goals, immediate feedback, matching challenges and skills, then the fourth characteristic of enjoyable activities begins to be noticed. And this is a feeling of focus, of concentration on what you're doing. People in flow always mention that somehow this uh, duality of attention that we have in everyday life disappears. Usually we are always kind of split in our attention. We are thinking of what you're doing and we are doing it. We are watching, monitoring what's happening around us, and we are doing something else. We have this split attention. But in flow, this split attention focuses, emerges into a single kind of beam of concentrated, focused attention. And this is why when you are in flow, you can achieve so much more, because you are not splitting your attention, which we need for achieving anything. We always need attention to accomplish anything. But when it's split, it's less efficient. When it's focused, it's much more effective. You can accomplish more, and you feel good about the ability to be completely, singly focused. It's a feeling of inner harmony, of great ease, great spontaneous energy that you feel when you achieve that kind of concentration. The fifth component of the flow experience follows from this fort, from this concentration, from this focus. The fifth element that people mention is that as you are so effortlessly and spontaneously and efficiently focused, you cannot be aware of the kind of problems that we always are aware in everyday life. That is, everyday frustrations are removed from attention. You cannot attend to them. If you are playing a musical instrument, you cannot worry about your family life, about your income tax, about your boss, about any of the things that in everyday life often inadvertently intrude on our attention. 
If you were to worry about those things as you are playing a musical instrument, you would hit a wrong note. Similarly, if you are a climber up there 3,000 feet above the valley floor and you're hanging by your fingertips and you start worrying about the kind of things that in everyday life worry us, you would fall, probably. So you can't afford, you can't let your mind wander to these kind of everyday frustrations of life. And that is a great feeling of relief. It's great to be operating in the present without worrying about the past, without worrying about the future, but being completely concentrated in what you're doing. In this sense, you may say that flow is a form of escape. You're escaping from reality. But it's good to remember that, for instance, Albert Einstein, the great physicist, used to say that art and science are the most effective forms of escape that people have developed. And it's true that art is a form of escape because instead of dealing with reality as it is, it creates a new reality, a reality that's more interesting, more beautiful, more exciting than the reality we are used to. Similarly, science, in a sense, denies the reality we know by bringing in new knowledge, new technology, new ways of operating, and in effect creating again a new reality. So there are different forms of escape. There are escape forward and escape backward. The escape backward is when you dull your sense of reality by using chemicals, drugs, alcohol, or by denying reality or by repressing reality. That's escape backwards. But in flow, you are escaping forward. You are creating new reality by taking on challenges that were not there before and by learning skills that you didn't have before. So that escape from the everyday frustrations of life that you get when you're so concentrated is relief from the past, a relief from the constraints of a reality which is frustrating and confusing, and it moves you into a whole new experience where you're completely involved and focused. The sixth condition that follows is that you feel that you can be in control of your life control of your actions, control of your experience. You are not, of course, in complete control because that would mean that your skills are higher than the challenges. You are on an edge, on an edge where control is possible. You can fall off that edge if you relax too much, if you don't use your skills to their complete possibility. But while you are on that edge, you know that at least in principle you can be in control. So that even rock climbers who are hanging there by their fingertips feel that on that mountainside they are more in control than if they were to cross a busy intersection in New York or Chicago where they wouldn't know whether a taxi cab or a delivery boy would run into them. They're crossing a the street, they are not in complete control, whereas hanging from their fingers on the mountain they know that if they prepare themselves, they develop their skills, they can match anything that the rock presents to them in terms of difficulty with their skills. This sense of control, again, is a great feeling. It's a feeling that you rarely have in everyday life where your boss or your family may react to you in ways that you can't predict and you can't 
control. So finally, there is a seventh condition that people mention universally, and that is that when they are in this challenging situation where they have to concentrate and use all their skills, they also lose a sense of self-consciousness. In other words, the kind of ego defenses that we have in everyday life. One thing we find in our research is that in everyday life, some of the worst feelings people have is when they are worried about how others think of them. For instance, if your hair is not in place, if you have a pimple on your face, if your tie is not right, you are wondering what others will think of you and you feel kind of defensive. If you have a project at work that you are worried about what your boss will think about, you feel self-conscious. And this feeling of monitoring yourself and how others think of you, this kind of defensiveness, this worry about your presentation of how you look, this is one of the worst feelings that we carry with us day in, day out. But when you are in flow, you don't have the luxury of worrying about yourself. You are so involved, you are so committed, you are so concentrated that you are no longer aware that yourself as a vulnerable, defenseless entity exists. You are so involved in what you're doing that you don't care anymore about what others think about you. In fact, very often in the depth of this flow experience, you feel a sense of transcendence, of going beyond the limits of the ego, going beyond the limits of the self. If you have ever sung, for instance, in a choir, you know the sense of being wrapped up in the music, of almost becoming part of the harmony, the melody that is soaring around you. If you have played in a team sport, you know that when the team is really performing well, it's this exhilarating sense that you are no longer isolated, but you are part of this energy that's flowing around you. Surgeons describe operating as being enjoyable in part because they are part of a choreography of movement. The anesthesiologists, the nurses, the other surgeons are all contributing to this common effort, and you feel exhilarated at not being alone, a separate individual, but being part of this team that's working together so beautifully and in harmony. So that sense of transcendence can come as a result of the flow experience. And the interesting thing is that even though you forget yourself during the activity, typically after the activity, we find that when flow is over and you think back of how it felt, how positive you felt, how skillful you had been, how you did something new that you didn't think you had accomplished before. As a result of reflecting on your flow experience, people's self-esteem increases. It becomes stronger. You feel good about yourself. You feel good about what you have accomplished. So you forget yourself at the moment, but after the activity, yourself returns stronger than it had been before. And it's one of the paradoxes of flow that you let yourself go 
and yet as a result of it, it returns stronger. The eighth characteristic of flow that people generally mention is that the sense of time seems to be transformed. Usually we chop up time into, you know, 60 minutes an hour, 60 seconds a minute and so forth, as if every little piece was equivalent and the same. But in flow, what happens is that sometimes hours get condensed into what seem to be minutes, so that you start a job and then you say, oh, maybe it's time to have lunch, but actually it's time for dinner because it's not been just two hours, but eight hours have passed. Other times, it feels like what in reality were a few seconds or less than a second gets stretched out into what seemed to be 15, 20 minutes, like a dancer doing a pirouette on her toes will say it seemed to have lasted, you know, 10 minutes, whereas it was less than a second. Because so much is packed into that moment that you experience every little movement of your body and every sight, every sound of the music gets stretched out. So what happens to time is that time adapts itself to your experience rather than the other way around, rather than trying to put your life into these boxes of 60 minutes an hour, uh, time adapts itself to how you actually feel when you're doing these things. And this is very common and very universally reported by anybody who has a flow experience, that time gets changed, the sense of time is changed. These are the eight main components people mention when what they do is fun and enjoyable. They have a clear sense of goals, they know how they are doing, their skills are matched to their challenges, their attention is concentrated on what they are doing, they operate in the moment, they are not worried about being out of control or about how they look in the eyes of other people. Time then passes fast, and one is glad to be doing whatever it is that provides such an experience. In the rest of these tapes, we shall see in greater detail how you can apply these conditions to every aspect of your life. One example of flow that shows how this type of enjoyment works in everyday life is one that I remember from my uh, teenage years when I was in Italy. And I used to hang out in the antique store run by a friend, Signor Orsini, who um, really loved his job. He used to try to sell old pieces that he collected from people around in the neighborhoods in Naples, often to tourists, but also to other Italians. And one day, an American lady walked in and looked around the store and was attracted to an 18th century little angel carved in wood and kind of gilded putto, they are called, these, these little angels. And she wanted to buy it and asked for the price. And uh, Signor Orsini told her um, a price that he kind of picked out of the blue. And it was a 
rather high price. But the American lady said, oh, fine. And she pulled out her American Express checks to buy it. And the owner, uh, Signor Orsini, got really furious. He got red in the face and said, no, lady, I'm sorry, I can't sell this to you. Please leave. And the lady was really uh, surprised and said, but no, no, what's wrong with it? And he said, well, if I were to be paid every price that I ask on the spur of the moment, this would not be fun anymore. Uh, My job would not be enjoyable anymore. I rather not sell it than not have fun out of the transaction. I was kind of nonplussed by it, and I, after the lady left, I asked him, well, but uh, wouldn't you rather make uh, all this money that you asked for? And he said, no, I, uh, I'm i not in this just for the money. Uh, I want to also enjoy the haggling, the, the trying to outsmart the, the customer, and uh, being paid what I asked for would make this a very dull job indeed. And that kind of opened my eyes at the time about how, as a shopkeeper, he thought that the greatest enjoyment was to match his wits against those of a customer who was also trying to use their wits to outsmart him. And so it was out of this kind of uh, almost like a lawyer and a prosecution and defense trying to get the best of a situation, he thought that his job was to get the best out of opposition against a worthy opponent and not just anybody who who was going to fall in with what he asked for. So flow is what we experience when we are enjoying something. That is when we are confronting some new challenge and we develop new skills to confront it. Listen as a rock climber recalls an experience he once had. When you first start climbing, you're you're very aware of capability. But after a while, you just do it without reflecting on it at the time. When you're climbing, you have to devote yourself totally to the climb. You you fuse your thinking with the rock. It's the zen feeling, like meditating or or, or, uh, concentrating. One thing you're after is the one-pointedness of mind. You can get your ego mixed up with climbing in all sorts of ways, and it isn't necessarily enlightening. But when things become automatic, it's like an egoless thing in a way. Somehow, the right thing is done without you ever thinking about it or doing anything at all. It just happens. What is the difference between pleasure and enjoyment? Professor Csikszentmihalyi tells us why only one of them leads to personal growth. By now, you may have noticed that the enjoyable state of flow is quite different from what people think of as pleasure. In fact, this is true. Pleasure is a good feeling programmed in our genes to make us do things that at one time in the past, before we were born, was good for the evolution of the human species. So, we feel pleasure when we eat, because this way our body is sure to get enough nutrition. We feel good about having sex, because this way our body is sure to reproduce itself. Pleasure is automatic, anyone can experience it, and it needs no skills. The downside of pleasure is that while it is necessary for survival, it does not help us grow. 
We can eat all we want, have as much sex as we can get, yet we will remain exactly what we were, without new skills, without new experiences. In fact, pleasure can be dangerous because if we don't learn how to control it, we can easily get addicted to it. Then we will spend our life overeating, getting trapped in routine sexuality, doing all the other things the genes have programmed us to do because it feels good, and in the process missing all the other exciting things that life offers. Enjoyment, on the other hand, does not come from simply satisfying our instincts. Flow is the result of recognizing new challenges, of developing skills we didn't have before. For this reason, flow leads to growth and to higher levels of complexity. But to lead a happy life, it is not enough to have many isolated flow experiences. The real important goal to shoot for is to learn to find enjoyment in any situation that may come up. To do so, you must become master of your consciousness. You must know how to harness attention to your goals. Everything we do happens in consciousness. Everything we experience happens in consciousness. In other words, you are aware of what happens around you, what happens inside you, only to the extent that these events are reflected in consciousness. For instance, if I want to tie my shoelace or want to drive a car, these activities are not possible unless I pay attention to them. And attention is, unfortunately, a limited resource. There is only so much we can attend to at any given moment. And attention is what is reflected in consciousness. That is, we can imagine consciousness to be like a searchlight that moves around and whatever it illuminates, we can see. But whatever it's not in the beam of the light is in darkness, we cannot see it. And so consciousness, which reflects our attention, is what we need in order to accomplish anything in life. And if our consciousness is in order, we can use our attention more effectively. But if what we are aware in consciousness is discrepant goals, things that conflict with each other, we want, at this point, we would like to have a snack, but actually we have to work and we feel this tug of war between our hunger and our job, that conflict reduces our ability to be effective. So, an ordered consciousness, a consciousness which is effective, is the most important thing we can expect from our life. Because if that consciousness is focused and ordered, then anything we do can be enjoyable and we can accomplish what we want to achieve. Flow experiences derive from autotelic experiences. When you are in an activity that produces flow or an autotelic experience, then consciousness is in harmony and focused. An autotelic experience is one that is worth having for its own sake. From the Greek word auto, self, and telos, goal. Autotelic means it's an experience that is worth 
doing because it provides a special feeling and the flow experience is what an autotelic experience is about. It makes you feel completely focused in harmony with yourself, pursuing a goal, getting feedback, forgetting yourself and being totally in the moment and doing it. It's important because that's when we feel most alive. It's important because that's when we are most effective, when we are most completely ourselves. And the more we can have that experience, the better off we are. One of my favorite examples is Linus Pauling, the chemist who won a Nobel Prize in chemistry, and then he received the Nobel Prize for peace because he got so involved in trying to marshal scientific attention against the proliferation of nuclear armaments. Linus Pauling um, was uh, over 90 years of age when we interviewed him for one of my studies. What is so impressive about this man is that although at 92 he should have slowed down, he's actually still totally alert and incredibly sharp. And he remembers everything that mattered in his life to the, the smallest details. And what is so amazing about him is that his whole life is made up of, as a whole, kind of seamless adventure. Everything he did is related to what he did in the past, and he's always ready for new challenges. But those challenges flow almost spontaneously from what he remembers of his earliest years. For instance, the first memories he had was working in his father's pharmacy. His father was a pharmacist in Portland, Oregon, and in the back room of his drugstore, the young Linus would be put to um, with a pestle and a mortar to break up um, talcum and other chemicals and mix them together to make new drugs. And he remembers the first surprise he had as a small, very small child, maybe five, six years old, about how when you mix two different substances, you get the third one, which is completely different from the others. And he was marveling at the wonder of this way in which uh, nature worked. And that's the beginning of his interest in chemistry. Now, his father died when, when Linus was only seven years old, but he had already caught the interest, the curiosity for this uh, type of work. And luckily, there were other pharmacists in Portland who adopted him and had him work in their pharmacies when he had some free time from school. So this curiosity led him into becoming a chemist, and he made some startling advances in chemistry by combining it with quantum mechanics, and that's how we got the Nobel Prize. But what is most important for him is that while chemistry became a source of flow experiences for him, Pauling was able to develop a complex self, one that was able to persevere and develop new skills, while at the same time remaining open to new experiences, and he was able to recognize new opportunities all through his life. For instance, at some point he decided to switch from the highly specialized intellectual pursuit in which he had been involved and tackle the issue of what is the responsibility of a scientist towards society and towards nature. He put his body as well as his reputation on the line to protest against heedless nuclear development, organized scientists against nuclear armament, 
and for a while he became involved in national politics. He was jailed for his activities and he was hailed by others and eventually he got the Nobel Prize. But you look at him at 92, you see the energy, the curiosity, the interest of a seven-year-old still there. And you would think he's a child, but in the 85 years in between, he has accomplished tremendous things. And to me, he is one example of what an autotelic personality is, what a complex self is. The five C's of a complex personality. There are five uh, characteristics that you could see as differentiating a person with a complex personality from those who do not have such. The first one is clarity. That is knowing what you want to do in your life as a whole, but also moment to moment as you go through the everyday activities of your life. Clarity of goals and also clarity of feedback, the ability to read your performance, to read how well you are doing and adjust yourself to what is happening around you. So clarity would be the first. The second is the ability to center, that is to focus, to know how to avoid distractions, how to become at one with what you're doing, to have all of your consciousness, all of your attention at your control, under your control. So if you can have clear goals and if you can control your attention and your psychic energy so you are centered when you need to, when you want to, those are the first two characteristics. Uh, third, we could call it choice. That is, knowing that there is a variety of possibilities around you, that you are not determined by outside events, that you are not forced to do the things you do, but you have a choice and you can move and focus that attention that you have controlled so that whatever you are doing is not because you have to do it, but because you want to do it, because this is what you have chosen to do. So that's the third characteristic. The fourth is the ability to commit yourself, to care for what you're doing. So you can choose, but you can choose it without really feeling that this is important for you. But people with a complex personality feel that what they do, whatever they do, they care for. They care about it. They're committed to it. So even trivial things like driving a car or mowing your lawn. It's something that you have chosen and you're committed to, and it's an important characteristic, this fourth one. The fifth and final characteristic is challenge. That is, you keep upping the challenge as you have mastered a certain level. You are always ready for novelty. You are always ready for making your life more exciting and more challenging. So these five uh, characteristics, each one of which starts with the C, clarity, centering, choice, commitment, and challenge, are typical of people with a complex personality. Um, complex self is one that can get flow experiences from not just uh, enjoyable activities like playing tennis or playing music, but that can relate to everything around it 
so as to derive flow from it. In other words, you are open to a greater variety of experiences than other people, and you know how to integrate this greater variety of experiences into your activities so that you can wait at the dentist's office in, in the waiting room, and instead of being bored, instead of being frustrated and worried, you can enjoy waiting for the dentist too, or you can get stuck in traffic, and instead of cursing and fuming, you can find a way to enjoy yourself even there. How to overcome feeling either bored or anxious. Flow leads to complexity because once you have experienced it, you want to experience it again and again. But to do so, you have to keep taking on new challenges or you will become bored. And to develop new skills or you will start getting frustrated and anxious. Psychic entropy is the concept that describes how we feel when Part of our mind is uh, trying to do one thing and our feelings go in a different direction and our body is clamoring to go in yet a third direction. That is, we are thorn by different goals, by different desires, different purposes, or as we can satisfy these different things we want to do, inevitably we feel conflict in our consciousness. We feel that our goals cannot be all satisfied because at the same time we need or want to do different things. This state is psychic entropy and it has a very similar meaning as entropy has in physics. In other words, entropy means confusion, inability to do work, randomness, chaos. And when you apply these concepts to your consciousness, Psychic entropy means chaos also because you are conflicted, you can't act efficiently, you feel that you want something that the other part doesn't want, and so you feel an attention, a conflict which immobilizes your consciousness, and so you can't achieve anything, and you feel confused and, and conflicted. Both boredom and... Anxiety are two states of psychic entropy. In other words, neither one of them is a state where you can feel good and operate efficiently. In boredom, the entropy comes from the lack of focus. Your mind goes all in circles. You feel bad about yourself. You feel sorry about yourself, you wish things were different, you sigh, you look out the window, you hope that something is going to happen to you, but you're not using your mind, you're not using your skills, your body in any efficient way. So it's like random movement of molecules in a jar or something. Um, your mind is just kind of going in circles and nothing is happening. Anxiety is um, an entropic state because there. You feel that you are overwhelmed, that you have to defend yourself against the incoming forces, against the danger or the threats, and you are uh, looking left and right, trying to find a way out, and again, you are not in control of your consciousness. You cannot focus, you cannot operate efficiently. So both anxiety and boredom are states of psychic entropy. Mm -hmm. 
One of the people I interviewed when we were studying flow in uh, work situations was a uh, young assembly line worker who I would call uh, Julio Martinez. Julio was uh, working on the assembly line one day and his mind was obviously somewhere else. He was distracted, he was irritable, he got into two or three little fights with his co-workers. So it was clear that he wasn't concentrating, that his mind was struggling. And in the interview, it came out that what was bothering Julio was that a few days earlier, he started noticing the tire on his car was uh, must have been punctured because it was getting very low. And so he had air pumped into it at a service station in the morning. By the evening when he got out of work, the tire was down again. Now, he didn't have the money to fix the tire until he was paid at the end of the month. So he just filled it up with air again and rushed home. And next morning it was down again. So he filled it up again and drove as fast as he could to work. But while he was working, he was still thinking about the tire and what would happen that night. Would he make it home or would the rim start scraping the pavement before he got home? So that's an example of what would happen uh, normally if you have no resources to cope with a problem of that kind. Now, if he had friends, he could have borrowed some money. If he knew how to use credit, he could have gotten credit, but he was new to the country. He didn't have friends. He was at the mercy of this external threat, this worry that bothered him, and his mind was trying to cope with this problem and reducing his efficiency as a worker, but even more, it was making it impossible for him to enjoy what he was doing to focus in because the threat destroyed his control over his psychic energy, over his attention. On the other hand, another worker in the same uh, factory, same assembly line, we'll call uh, Rico Medellin. Rico had been working on this same job for about seven years. He had come from Mexico with a fifth grade education. And what his job was, was to stay there and fix uh, the level of the sound on a projector that would come in front of him on the assembly line every minute or so. And he had really 47 seconds to adjust the sound level to make sure that it was neither too low nor too high. For doing that, he had a couple tools like a stethoscope and a screwdriver. And with this, he had to make sure this this uh, piece of equipment had the sound level well adjusted. Well, one could think that there are a few jobs more boring than what Rico had to do. I mean, it was uh, something that would drive you out of your mind by its repetitiveness and boredom. But on the other hand, Rico approaches job like Olympic athlete would uh, approach the task of breaking his record on, let's say, the high jump or something equally difficult. So he had cut down the time it took him to do this job from 47 seconds to something close to 30. And he felt that having done this, he has developed his skill, developed his abilities, and he was extremely proud, even though he didn't get paid more for this. Um, it didn't really help the assembly line because the people down 
from his place, we're still going at the old um, pace. So for Rico, this focus on bettering his record of improving on his time was simply a question of pride, of ability to develop his skills. And while he was working, he was completely involved in it. He kept saying how much better it was than watching TV or hanging out in a tavern with his buddies, that he felt so much more alive when he did his work. And he wasn't just stuck in his rut either, because he knew that after going below 30, he may hit 25 seconds, um, but below that, he couldn't really go. And so at night, on Tuesdays and Thursdays, he was taking courses in electronics so he could get a better job. And he was close to getting a diploma and finding a more challenging job. So that approach is one where you see this kind of focusing of energy and goals and feedback and developing skills, which characterizes the flow experience. The essential thing is to pay attention to what is happening around us and to be involved with the endlessly rich opportunities for action that the world provides. To notice the things that we enjoy, to learn how they work, to learn to interact with them. If you like music, listen to it with care, learn how to make it. If you like plants, grow your own flowers. If you like cars, learn how to fix them. If you like money, learn more about the stock market or about starting your own business. But you should not do these things primarily because you want to be a skilled musician or because you want to be rich. You should do them simply because of the enjoyment you get from the activity itself. If everything you do is for an ulterior motive, to be admired, to be in control, or to be wealthy, then chances are that you won't enjoy the passing moment. And instead, you will spend most of your life feeling anxious or bored. On the other hand, if you learn to act for the simple joy of being alive, anxiety and boredom will disappear, and you won't waste or regret any moment of your life. Flow is like a magnet for growth. It pulls us to higher and higher levels of being, to increasingly more complex experiences. A man who lives in one of Chicago's suburbs and takes the elevated train to work every morning says, On a day like this, or days when it's crystal clear, I just sit in the train and look over the roofs of the city because it's so fascinating to see the city, to be above it, and to be there but not be a part of it. To see these forms and, and these shapes, these marvelous old buildings, some of which are totally ruined. And I mean, just the fascination of the thing, the curiosity of it. I can come in and say, coming to work this morning was like coming through a Sheeler Precisionist painting, because he painted rooftops and things like that in a very crisp, clear style. It often happens that someone who's totally wrapped up in a means of visual expression sees the world in those terms. Like a photographer looks at a sky and says, this is a Kodachrome sky. Way to go, God. You're almost as good as Kodak. There are many ways you can get into the flow state. On this side, you'll learn how to use your body to create a flow experience.
Perhaps the simplest way to begin getting into flow is through the use of the body. All movements and sensations are potentially enjoyable. Learning to control our muscles make hundreds of different sports and games available. The eyes open up for us the realms of art, the ears the domains of music. Unfortunately, most of us take our bodies for granted and we fail to explore even a tiny fraction of the enjoyment that physical sensations can provide. Or even worse, we become dependent on a specific physical stimulant, alcohol, cocaine or sex, and instead of learning to enjoy the gamut of possibilities that the body offers, we end up addicted to the passive consumption of a chemical. Learning to use the body expands experience. We grow and become more complex as we control its potentialities and enjoy its sensations. The human body is capable of hundreds of separate functions. Seeing, hearing, touching, running, swimming, throwing, catching, climbing up mountains are only a few of them. Each function is capable of producing its own flow experience. For example, the simple act of moving the body across space, whether dancing, running, or jumping, becomes a source of complex feedback that provides optimal experience and adds strength to the self. Each sensory organ, each motor activity can be harnessed to the production of flow. Here is how a world-class figure skater interviewed by Susan Jackson describes a typical flow experience. I knew every single moment. In fact, I even remember going out into a jump, and, and this is awful, but thinking, oh gosh, this is so real. I'm so clear in my thoughts. There was just a real clarity to it all. I felt in such control of everything, of every little movement. I was very aware, you know, like what was on my hand. I could feel my rings. I could feel everything. And I felt I had control of anything. Flow and walking. The easiest way to use physical activities to produce flow is probably walking. And we all walk, we all have to walk to go from one place to the other. And most of the time walking is a um, waste of time. Many people feel it's uh, imposition. If you can't drive somewhere, then it's a hardship to have to walk. And yet, even the simple, routine, mundane act of walking can become enjoyable if you set for yourself goals as to where to walk, how to walk, how fast to walk, and learn to get feedback from walking itself. From Just at first from the movement of your arms, how your breathing goes as you walk, how straight you can be, or how well you're swinging as you walk. All of these little parts, these tiny aspects of this simple activity which usually go unnoticed. Once you start paying attention to it and appropriating them, taking control over them, they can become enjoyable. Then you can decide where to walk, that is, what kind of a route you want to take from one point to the other and whether you want to pass in front of certain stores or whether you want to avoid certain places, whether you want to cross at one point or down the block. All of these decisions, once you make them consciously instead of letting it happen by chance, they can add to the feeling of control that you have and to the feeling of um, in a sense, discovery, even in the most routine activity that you can imagine. And um, 
Of course, if you start walking in a park or on a mountainside or on the bed of a river when you jump from one rock to the other, then the same act of walking acquires a whole different dimension. It becomes more like a sport or a work of art. It's fun, for instance, to try to get down a river without getting wet by going from rock to rock. And it is like a small kind of engineering planning project, and yet all your body's involved, and you can have a lot of fun, especially with young people. But even later in life, this use of the body can always be enjoyable. And that's the simplest thing, walking. We can then go through all the different ways you use the body through jogging, through exercising, through dancing, through various sports, individual sports, group sports. I mean, the possibilities are literally endless. And the question is, what is the activity, the physical activity that attracts you the most, that seems best suited to your body, to your abilities, and then build on it until you begin to enjoy it. Flow and Hatha Yoga. Probably the most systematic ways of inducing flow through physical activity are those disciplines that Eastern religions, Eastern philosophies have developed, for instance, Hatha Yoga, where you learn to control every little part of your body first by focusing attention on breathing, learning how to breathe. That's, for instance, one thing we do without ever thinking about it. We all breathe, and unless we, for instance, get caught underwater or some other way, our breath is deprived, and then we panic. But usually we don't think about breathing. Whereas in the East, in yoga, you learn to control every inhalation and every exhalation of air, and you focus on it, you pay attention to it, and then even the act of breathing becomes a conscious, directed activity. After that, you learn to sit in places where you feel comfortable on the floor. You find your favorite place. You find the best place to feel comfortable, the best lighting, the best air. So you're controlling and beginning to find the best relationship between your inner states and the external environment. And then, of course, you start learning to control your movement so that you can do the strangest feats of physical activity, putting your foot behind your neck and standing on your head and feeling comfortable doing it. All of these are ways of using the body to achieve goals that you set up, take up higher and higher challenges, develop higher and higher skills. So that essentially you don't need anything else except your own body with which you were born to achieve higher levels of skill and complexity and keep enjoying flow. Flow and Sexuality In some ways, what seems the opposite of this almost religiously disciplined use of the body in yoga seems to be the issue of sexuality. How to get enjoyment, not only pleasure, but also enjoyment out of sex. Actually, yoga and sex are not completely different. We know there are forms of yoga like kundalini yoga, which are based on sexuality, of learning to enjoy sex more and more. And so, 
sex itself can become an art form that shares with yoga this ability to use what otherwise would be simply pleasurable experiences in an artistic, in a conscious, in a skillful way. Everybody can have pleasure at sex because that is built in our nervous system. But sex that remains pleasurable also induces boredom quite quickly. It's like after eating, you feel sated, and then you are ready to eat again once you are hungry again, but nothing has changed. It's just a repetition of the same process. Similarly, if sex is only pleasurable, it will be pleasurable at the moment, but then you will have to wait again until you feel ready for it, and then it will be the same experience and you haven't changed much. But if, in addition to the pleasure, you begin to develop certain skills and recognize new possibilities, then sexuality can become more and more of an art form. And again, in every culture, there have been kind of professionals of sex or artists of sex who realize the possibilities of this form. And unfortunately, when that happens, they become like professional athletes. They do it as a kind of an entertainment for a great audience who just watches, whereas the challenge, I think, is to learn to do that in our own life so that we learn to make the most of the possibilities of two people being together and trying to give as much pleasure to each other as possible. And eventually, from that, even greater challenges arise, such as real love, care for each other, understanding of each other, which grow out of simple sexuality and become the kind of art form that the romantic poets have talked about or that even almost the kind of religious or mystical union between two people. So the challenges are there and they are easy to see but not so easy to actualize, to realize, unless you can devote enough attention to that, you develop your skills and you lose yourself and you understand that only by growing in sexuality can you maintain the enjoyment of that activity. Flow and the senses. The same pattern holds for the other senses that we have. For instance, we all are lucky to be able to see, most of us are anyway. We take for granted the ability of using our eyes for seeing. But most of us do not develop this ability beyond what we need just not to bump into objects. We use the eyes simply as a distant warning system for avoiding obstacles. Whereas if you begin to see the possibilities of what the eyes can do, you begin to enter the realm, for instance, of art. Those who appreciate art can get tremendously complex, tremendously involving experiences simply by looking at things in fresh ways, noticing things that we ordinarily don't notice. You can see even traveling in a train, commuting to work, you can look out and see the freshly washed roofs of the city shining under the sun and get a tremendous feeling of appreciation for it. Or you look out at the night sky and see the stars and feel taken almost out of yourself by the grandeur of that sight. 
You can begin to appreciate art, works, painting, sculpture, architecture, the way houses are built, or the way trees look in the park. All of these visual stimuli that are potentially so rich and so enriching are lost to those who don't pay enough attention to what they see. They don't develop the skills of their visual equipment. And it's a great waste because life can be so tremendously more enjoyable if you see what you're looking at instead of just glancing over things and noticing only those things that you think are useful to you at the moment. Hearing, of course, is another sense that we all have, or most of us have, and which, again, all too often we take for granted. Again, hearing is a form of communication. It's something that we use to warn ourselves as to something that happens around us. But the beauty, the depth of experience that people get from music is perhaps the greatest of any of the senses. From the oldest tribal societies, music has been a way of helping to order the inner states of people, helping to order consciousness through rhythm, through melody. You establish a pattern which, by listening to, you order your inner senses. We find, for instance, that teenagers these days, whenever they feel depressed, the first thing they do is they turn on to music. And even if the music is, by our adult standards, chaotic and cacophonic, they find in it a measure of stability and serenity that makes them feel better. So the possibility of using music as a way of creating order in consciousness, of focusing in on a pattern of sounds, is one of the easiest and perhaps most prevalent ways of using the senses to create flow. Another one is taste. Again, we often forget that taste is one of the basic pleasures of life, and we can simply get pleasure from eating when we are hungry. But taste can also provide enjoyment, that is, go beyond pleasure. By developing a discriminating palate, by learning how to tell the difference between different cuisines, between different wines, by learning how to produce that taste through cooking, this can be a tremendously important form of enjoyable experiences. And it's possible to exaggerate it. Some people get so wrapped up in food, they become foodies, and all they talk about is different dishes and different types of wine. And that's too bad. When you get overly attached to any one of these forms of flow, you can become dependent and you can become boring to others by just fixating on one dimension of enjoyment. But when you combine them, as many of these as possible, when you combine the movement of the body, and the enjoyment of sexuality, the discipline of things like yoga, the ability to see beauty around you, to hear the orderly, harmonious patterns of music, to experience the refinement of different and subtle tastes. When all of these are combined, your life becomes incredibly more rich and enjoyable. Flow and Physiology A dancer describes this feeling. A strong relaxation and calmness comes over me. I have no worries of failure 
What a powerful and warm feeling it is. I want to expand, to hug the world. I feel an enormous power to affect something of grace and beauty. Many people believe that the flow experience must have a physiological cause. For instance, you hear about runners and other athletes who show a higher secretion of certain hormones or endorphins in their nervous system when they are really involved, when they are really going with whatever athletic feat they are doing. And it's certainly true that flow has a biological, neurophysiological substrate. That is, in order to have this experience, some change must occur in your nervous system. But the mistake is in believing that one comes necessarily before the other, or more precisely, that the physiology must change before you have the experience. It's much more likely, from what we know about how the mind works, that Once you begin to feel this total involvement, this focusing of attention, that as a result of that act that is under your control, that the physiology, the automatic adjustments of your hormones and your secretions in your nervous system begin to operate. So the two are correlated. But it's not the case that it's simply a question of the physiology causing the state. It's more likely that the direction of causality goes in the other direction. Namely, it's how you feel that determines what happens in your physiology, at least in this case here. Flow and Meditation Many people think that the only way to get flow is through some active physical activity, through sports or through things like art or music. But actually, it really depends on what is happening on your mind, whether you experience flow or not. So it's very possible, for instance, to get into a flow state through meditation, through different types of techniques of relaxation or mental discipline. But here again, the important thing is not what you do, but how you do it. So, for instance, in meditation, if you simply follow steps that you learn from the outside, if you took it from a book, if you just apply them without thinking, without reflecting on them, without choosing which of these techniques or which goals you want to endorse or try first, then it's less likely you will get into the flow experience. But otherwise, if you develop a system of meditation, which you may have learned from others or from books or tapes, and you appropriate that technique, that is, you choose when and how to apply it, then the possibility of flow is much higher. By appropriating meditation, I mean that you impose on it your own goals, you learn your own feedback to it, so that you know when you are doing it right or wrong. If you don't have at least that much of your own in the method, then you are doing it against the grain. You are doing it kind of passively. You are following somebody else's plan. But people who begin enjoying meditation, for instance, will choose their own time of day, their own place where they feel most comfortable meditating. They will put on the dress or undress that is most comfortable for them at the moment. 
they will fix on certain ideas or mantras or outside objects that they feel a particular kinship to. They will do it for as long as they decide that it's best for them. All of these are ways of appropriating. As you make the activity fit into a plan of goals and feedbacks that you have decided on. In fact, many flow experiences appear to be passive if an outside viewer were to see the person involved with them. For instance, one of the most generally reported flow experiences around the world is simply reading, reading good books, reading fiction that is involving reading great literature, even detective stories if you are in the mood for them. But here too, reading can become flow only if you do this actively. If you do the reading by developing goals as you read, that is, for instance, if you read a detective story, the goal is to figure out who done it, who is the murderer, who are the good guys, who are the bad guys. So in your mind, you begin to expect certain outcomes. You expect this guy to be the good guy and this girl to fall in love with this character and will they get married or not. So you develop these little goals as you read without noticing, without doing it consciously, but you have expectations and you see the outcomes, you see what's happening. And as you are proven right or wrong, you get a feeling that you are in with this story, you are in part of the flow of this plot. Then you can get caught up in it. You put down the book and you say, oh my gosh, it's already nighttime and I thought only an hour has passed. So reading, when it's done actively, when it's done the same way as any other flow experiences, it can become a rewarding activity. It is easy to enrich life by exploring the potentialities for enjoyment the body has to offer. We all have at least some of these potentials, and they are easily accessible. If you start thinking about it, what tremendous gifts are hidden under our skin, yet how few of them we ever discover. Think about the range of experiences you could have access to if you wanted to. Which ones seem to you the most attractive? Would you like to learn to climb rocks, to skydive, to scuba dive, to dance, to learn more about music, to learn more about Chinese cooking, about yoga? There must be something out there that you have never tried and would like to. Go for it. Your body is the link between what is outside and what's in your consciousness. Using it helps you to be joyfully in tune with the world. Tolas Tibor, a poet who spent several years in solitary confinement in a jail in Hungary, recalls, I was in solitary confinement in a Hungarian jail cell with several other highly intellectual men. We decided to hold a poetry translation contest. First we had to decide on the poem to translate. It took months to pass the nominations around from cell to cell and several more months of ingenious secret messages before the votes were tallied. Finally, it was agreed that Walt Whitman's O Captain, My Captain was to be the poem to translate into Hungarian, partly because it was the one that most of us could recall from memory in the original English.
Then we set to work writing our own versions of the poem. The problem was, however, that there was not paper or writing tools, so I spread a film of soap on the soles of my shoes and carved the words with a toothpick. After we all learned the line, I would cover my shoes with a new coating of soap. In this way, we were able to translate the various stanzas, memorize them, and pass them on to the next cell. We came up with twelve versions of the poem in all. Then we judged which we thought to be the best version and selected a winner. After Whitman, we went on to tackle a poem by Schiller. Like the body, there are many ways of enjoying a flow experience using the mind. Here are a few suggestions from Professor Csikszentmihalyi. A nine-year-old girl in one of my studies explained why she enjoys doing math in school. It's so neat, she says. When you get a problem, you know there is a solution, and if you try hard, you will find it. It's like an Easter egg hunt, or like getting the last missing piece of a puzzle. This girl has learned that using the mind is one of the most profoundly enjoyable experiences we can have. After physical sensations, the mind is the most reliable source of flow. People all around the world have created mental activities to improve the quality of their experiences in everyday life. Cultures, the great systems of belief, value, art, literature, ways of life are in many ways like enormously complex games that make flow possible for those who belong to them. Some people relish memorizing passages from the Bible, others learn poems by heart. Some spend all their free time playing chess, others collect stamps, learn languages, or do chemical experiments in their basements. What is common to all of these activities is that the patterns of thought involved in them follow the rules of flow and therefore provide enjoyment to those involved in them. I shall suggest some of the ways that you also can develop these possibilities, even if you never thought that doing so might be fun, and even though you may think that your life is already too busy to do something new. Remember that the quality of life depends on how much flow you have, day in, day out. Learning to play with the thoughts in your mind is one of the easiest ways to add flow to it. The nature of the mind, we think, is to obey our wishes, so that if we want to think about something, our mind will just simply obey and follow our desire to think about something nice or something useful. But in actuality, it's very difficult to control the mind. In my studies, I have become more and more aware that for most of the time, and for most people, the natural state of the mind is chaos. That is, when they are not doing something they have to do, when they are not working or when they are not responding to a conversation or being involved with others, then their mind starts drifting away and starts delving on problems, on things that are unpleasant. Uh, you start imagining that people don't like you. You start worrying about gaining weight, about getting old. Flow and daydreaming. 
One of the most pleasant things when one is young is to have daydreams, to have the mind follow a set of pictures, a set of images that are pleasant, that will show you how, what happens when you go out conquering the world or discovering a new place or becoming famous and respected. These daydreams are one ways that you learn to begin to have your mind follow a pattern. And it's also one of the most enjoyable things. And yet, it turns out, when you study children, that a lot of children just don't learn even to daydream. They can't follow a pattern of fantasy, a pattern of visual images that they want to do. They never learn to do that. And that's a great pity. They are deprived of an important source of flow. And also, they are deprived of something that can be very important later on, because I think out of daydreams grow adult plans, adult visions. When, as you grow up, you begin to turn away from the imaginary, kind of fantastic, adventurous daydreams of youth, and you begin to use your mind to rehearse events that are more realistic. You begin to think about how you will deal with this particular person, how you will approach this particular girl or boy that you want to meet, how you are going to solve this particular problem. In other words, you are using the mind now in a kind of problem-solving mode, visualizing your behavior, visualizing the behavior of others, and that is extremely important, extremely useful tool to have. And it is also one that can be enjoyable if you learn the rules. If you learn, I shouldn't say the rules because it sounds more conscious than it actually is. But if you learned the practice, the discipline of following one idea with another, to focus in and when you get distracted, to return to the plot, to return to the vision that you had. So... That is one way in which the mind begins to be used as a source of flow. Flow and Memory Another way in which the mind can provide flow is through the use of memory. Memory is perhaps the most important feature of our uh, nervous system. That is, the fact that events that occur to us don't get erased immediately, but can be stored away and be recalled at will when we need them. That's why we can learn. That's the basis for any higher intellectual function that we can do. Without memory, we would be essentially helpless and intellectually no different from a plant. But memory not only is useful in giving us this tremendous power over our experiences and our environment, but it is also, again, a source of enjoyment. For instance, I remember as a child looking with awe at my grandfather, who was 75 years of age last time I saw him, and he could still remember these poems he learned in school when he was 50 years younger. The kind of air of pleasure, of relaxation that came over his features when he could declaim this Homer in Greek, which is one thing he had to learn. The ability to recall the past in an organized, well-structured way through poetry, through the Bible, through your favorite passages from literature, is one of the great sources of enjoyment that we can have. But these days, we think that memorizing anything is just a way of loading up your mind with 
unnecessary equipment. And yet, that's not true. Memorizing is not for the purpose of using it for something useful, purposeful, but it is more as a source of play. Memorizing text, memorizing poetry is a way of playing in your mind with well-ordered, well-structured ideas. And some people carry with them their favorite words and poems or baseball statistics written on pieces of paper so that when they want to look at it, they can take it out. And that's how you start. You first write things down that impress you, that please you, that you want to remember. And then eventually you can start remembering them. And that is the beginning of playing with memories and enjoying the use of memories. But from there, one can move on to much more systematic ways. For instance, many people like to, or I should say probably all people, like to remember their own family roots, their history, the family tree, where they came from. And this for many people, is a tremendous source of enjoyment. They go out and try to trace back who they are related to, where they come from, create a kind of a family tree. And many people become historians of their family. They not only trace their relatives, the ancestors, but also the events, what happened to them, where they came from, what they did. And there's no reason that only professional historians should know about the past. It's something that all of us can be concerned with and can derive enjoyment from. And at first, of course, we may be interested in the history of our own family, of our own parents, grandparents. But then it becomes interesting to understand the history of the community in which you live or the ethnic group to which you belong or perhaps the history of your profession or the hobbies that you work with. So this looking back into the past enriches the present and gives meaning to the future in a way that can be very satisfying and enjoyable as you do it. So the use of memory, both in terms of favorite ideas, favorite verses, and also in terms of what happened in the past and how it relates to you now is one important source of flow. Flow and the use of language. One of the great potentialities of the mind is the ability to use language. We have gotten used to the idea that speaking and communicating is simply in order to pass information back and forth. But actually, the amazing thing about words and language is how much fun they can be when we start playing with them. Our children, for instance, had hours and hours of fun, and we all had fun around the dinner table when we started using puns and plays and words when they were small pretending to misunderstand what they were saying when the word had double meaning. For instance, having your grandmother for dinner could mean either inviting her or having her cook for dinner. And the children at first were very puzzled by that. But, you know, they catch on and they realize that by moving words around, by giving them different meanings, you can create a different reality in your mind. You can imagine that things are happening which are not exactly the way they are. And so a routine, everyday type of life can be changed by the use of words. 
After a while, you begin to play with words more systematically, for instance, using crossword puzzles, which are actually a very good way, for instance, to increase one's vocabulary. One thing that you find with successful executives, for instance, is that the breadth of vocabulary is one of the things that distinguishes them most from people at the same level who do not advance in a company or a corporation. So the ability to use words becomes an important tool later on in life. And unless children learn how to use words early and unless you practice that all through your life, the ability to use words as tools for both reflecting reality and changing reality, unless you do that, you are going to be handicapped and you are going to lose a great opportunity for enjoying this facility that the mind provides, the use of language as a way of playing, as a way of changing reality. Of course, after playing with words like with riddles and puzzles, you can use words in a more aesthetic, in a more creative way, and that is by writing, writing down your ideas as stories or even as poems. It has been shown, for instance, that older people who never wrote really in their lives anything except perhaps checks, once they are in their 60s, 70s and their life becomes constricted, they can learn to write poems and that enlarges the quality of their lives tremendously. Poetry is not just for poets, it's a way for us to use words to describe what we actually feel, what is happening to us. Flow and Games Then the mind can be used for a variety of games, learning rules, learning ways to operate mentally according to the rules. We all know some of these games, for instance, playing card games, playing chess, playing checkers. All of these are good ways to experience the ability of the mind to overcome challenges. The challenges may be your competitors you are playing against. But there are games that you can invent where the rules are known only to you. For instance, one of my friends, a famous physicist, who gets very bored when he has to sit in boring lectures, which happens quite a lot when you are in academia, instead of feeling bored and feeling sorry for himself, he developed the strategy of playing with his fingers as if he were playing the piano, and by alternating beating with his thumb and then the middle finger, the index and the ring finger, then the middle finger and the pinky, and doing this in about 25 different ways to form a pattern, he can actually do this for about over 3,000 different combinations without stopping and without repeating the same pattern. And this seems like a fairly silly way to spend time, but actually he is able to lift the level of attention and concentration that otherwise would be diffused by his boredom by doing this activity. So playing games like chess, bridge, or inventing your own rules for paying attention is one way to avoid the obstacles to psychic harmony, to the ordering of consciousness, which boredom and anxiety usually provide. But if you are tired of playing games, 
and you want to do something more constructive with your mind, there is nothing wrong with venturing into areas like science and medicine. This may seem strange for someone who perhaps doesn't have a higher degree or didn't even finish college, but there is no reason why one could not use one's mind in a systematic way, in a useful way, even if one lacks a degree or a diploma. Flow and Science Some of the greatest scientists in the past did not have degrees, were not trained, and were not certified in the scientific branch in which they studied. Some of the great physicists and discoverers of electricity, like Volta, were trained in medicine, and then they switched to physics. Galileo was trained originally also in law and then became the initiator of physics. People have laboratories in their basements. They can experiment, they can build things, they can do sometimes truly amazing achievements by spending energy, focusing attention on the issues that interest them. But of course you have to be interested. You have to develop at least some curiosity and interest in a part of reality. And that is one of the gifts of a complex consciousness, the ability to be open to interest, to the openness to new ideas, to new sensations, to aspects of reality that are interesting and puzzling. Flow and the study of wisdom. Another branch of activity for the mind is the study of ancient wisdom, the philosophies, the religions of older times that in different cultures or in our own culture people have struggled to assemble, struggled to use to make our lives more understandable, more clear to make the relation among people more fruitful, more easy. So again, you find people who, without training, without being officially recognized as philosophers or scholars, people still are able to glean the wisdom, to assemble the knowledge by reading, by talking, by joining clubs and discussion clubs of books and ideas. Uh, taking evening courses, going to lectures, a whole world of information of important wisdom opens up if you take seriously the challenge that your mind is exposed to in this complex world in which we live. In other words, the whole point is that the mind is an organ that has incredible potential. You may wonder in what way studying philosophy or religion contributes to flow, or what good is it unless you do it at a professional level. Well, anybody who starts delving into these knowledge that the past has accumulated begins to feel the exhilaration, the enjoyment that a challenge to the mind can provide. It was Plato who, 25 centuries ago, said that nothing is as enjoyable as using your mind in studying philosophy. And in a way, that is true, especially if you are not forced to do it, when you do it spontaneously because you are interested on your own. 
What happens when you study the wisdom of older times is the same as what happens to the mind when you focus on a game or on a puzzle or on a poem. In other words, you begin to see a goal as you start reading. The goal is to understand what the author is trying to talk about. And usually the author starts out by talking about some important topic, like how do we know what is good and bad? How do we know whether things exist? How do we know what is beautiful? These are the topics that philosophers have been struggling to understand for a long time. And these are the goals of the particular essay or book that you are going to read. So once you are aware of what the goal is, you follow sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph, the argument of the author. And each paragraph is going to present you with a challenge with a way of thinking about the subject that you have never thought before. And the skill that you have to use is to try to decode, try to understand what the author is presenting you. What is the challenge that is being put in front of you by the author? This activity, this process of setting goals, taking on the challenge of the writer, developing the skill to meet the challenge, produces the same form of concentration and loss of self and order in consciousness that other types of flow activities provide. And you are going to experience the enjoyment of this unified, focused state of mind while you are doing the activity. And then, if the activity is studying philosophy, religion, the wisdom of the ancients, at the end of it, not only will you have experienced flow, but you will have added a small amount of important knowledge to your life. One very moving example of what playing with the contents of the mind can do is a story that I heard from a man I interviewed a few years ago. His name is George Faludi. He's a poet who has translated thousands of poems from every language known to man, practically, into Hungarian. And he has also written many poems of his own, several books, actually, of poems. But the most interesting work he did was while he was in a prison camp, where he was put by the communists for having criticized Stalin and the communist regime, so he was put in this camp where actually a majority of the people would eventually die because the conditions were so cruel and inhumane. People had to work year-round without adequate clothing and food, being persecuted by the guards, beaten up if they didn't obey immediately. In other words, it was the worst of the nightmares of dictatorial communist society. What was so moving was the fact that throughout this nightmare situation, Faludi kept writing poems, but writing is not the right word because he didn't have pencil, paper, or anything to write with. So he composed um, his poems uh, line at a time and memorized it, and when he had nine, ten lines memorized, he would teach it to one or two of his prison inmate or camp inmate, who was very glad to learn the poem because by learning the poem, they had something inside their mind that was truly theirs, that was beautiful, 
that could not be taken away from them by the guards. Over and over, he taught these poems, pieces of poems, to hundreds of inmates. So he felt that if he were to die, like so many others did, at least these verses that were true descriptions of what people in those conditions felt would not be lost. He had a way of saving them for posterity. One touching part of this was that as some of the inmates were freed after the regime started to soften up somewhat, when some of these people went back to Budapest where the poet's wife lived, they would go to her and recite parts of a long poem that he wrote to his wife. The memory of his wife was part of what kept him sane during these uh, years of deprivation. And so they would recite a line here, a line there, all that they had memorized, and they would tell her, well, this is the part I know, but in two or three weeks um, there's this other guy who's coming out and he will be able to tell you the rest. And so... Slowly, these poems that were memorized were put together again, were written down, and they were published. And now they are some of the most true and devastating testimonials to the brutality of man on the one hand, but they are also testimonials to the power of the mind to overcome conditions of terrible deprivation by creating something beautiful out of the tragic conditions which sometimes are the lot of our life. Just as the body makes possible an enormous variety of enjoyable physical activities, the mind unlocks an entire world of possibilities for flow. Most of us, however, feel that we are too busy, too harassed, too tired to use our mind beyond what is necessary. We think of the mind as a problem-solving tool to be used at work and to deal with emergencies. As soon as we get home, however, we prefer to disconnect our minds and think as little as possible. We feel that we deserve our rest and believe that turning into couch potatoes will make us feel relaxed and happy. Unfortunately, mindless relaxation is not very restful, and it certainly does not lead to mental or physical growth in complexity. If we stop thinking of the mind as simply a problem-solving tool and think of it instead as an organ of enjoyment, we shall discover a whole new world of opportunities for flow. At first, it will be hard to concentrate on the symbolic skills required for enjoying the use of the mind. It is not easy to become an amateur poet, historian, or scientist. It is important to start with simple challenges, to set manageable goals, to savor and evaluate the results of your work, to concentrate at first for short periods, then for longer and longer periods of time. Sooner or later, what you do will become easier, and before you know it, you will be taken up by the spontaneous current of thought you will be carried away by the flow of the mind. Listen as one woman talks about how she experiences flow at work. To be totally absorbed in what you are doing and to enjoy it so much that you don't want to be doing anything else. 
I don't see how people survive if they don't experience something like that. If I went to work every day and just had to sort of wait until Miller time, just do my work and have no feeling of getting anything out of it, I'd look for something else to do. How can you make your work life more enjoyable? The uses of flow on the job are applicable to managers, secretaries, or just about anyone else who wants to develop their potential for happiness. Flow is not something that happens only in free time when you have nothing better to do. The ideal and natural way of things is one where we enjoy equally every aspect of life, work and play, obligations and leisure. One of the biggest problems in our society is that we have divided life into work that we feel is necessary but is unpleasant, and play which we enjoy but find basically meaningless. Our studies show that by sixth grade children have learned to feel unhappy, bored and weak when they are doing anything they think of as work, and to feel happy, excited and strong when they do something they define as play. At the same time, they say that work is important for them and play is not. So we learn to be never satisfied. We either do something tedious but necessary, or something pleasant but pointless. Yet, for most people, the job they do provides more opportunities for growth and enjoyment than their leisure time does. It is not too difficult to understand why this should be so. For many people at work, the challenges are higher. The goals are clearer, the feedback more consistent than they usually are in free time. Therefore, you may be happier when working than you are at home. A person who has developed an autotelic personality enjoys work and play equally and finds meaning in both. Some jobs are almost created in order to make flow possible. For instance, um, the highly professional jobs such as being a surgeon, being a lawyer, being a computer programmer provides an almost infinite number of skills and challenges and one can operate within those jobs having the same amount of flow as one would have being an artist or being an athlete. So there are many jobs that provide flow almost naturally. For instance, one of the professions we studied is that of surgeons. Surgeons are supposed to be so enamored of their job that many of them are unable to take vacations and if their wives finally take them down to the Caribbean or to Acapulco, after a few days on the beach, they will go and volunteer in the local hospital to do operations there because surgery is the most exciting things they can think of. They become addicted. Many surgeons say that doing surgery is almost as addictive as being on heroin. You can't stop doing it. Some of the surgeons say their hands become trembling after a few days that for some reason they can't operate. So you become addicted to the high quality of experience because doing surgery is an um, activity where you have very clear goals, you know what organ you have to excise or what bones you have to reset and it, everything is very clearly spelled out 
And as you do the surgery, as you move uh, second by second, you know how well you're doing. As long as there is no blood in the cavity, for instance, you know that your um, cut is going the way it should go. Like a tennis player who knows every second where the ball is going and where it should go, so the surgeon knows how well he's doing minute by minute. Now, this quality of tremendous focus and involvement is possible because it's one of the characteristics of the job. Now, many jobs we do do not have that well-structured quality that makes us feel flow when we do it. There are many others that do, but not all. In fact, most of the office jobs we do, most of the clerical jobs, are so undefined and the goals are either very repetitive and you have to do the same thing over and over and it becomes boring or it's not very clear what you should be doing and so you're kind of operating in a fog most of the time. Under these conditions, when the job does not provide flow on its own, then the only recourse for a person is to be able to change the job around so that there will be flow even though it's not there to begin with. So you are responsible in a sense, if you want to enjoy what you're doing, to create your own goals, to provide your own challenges. The two things that most people complain about their jobs is that it lacks variety, that it lacks challenge, that's one. The second one is that it is difficult to get along with your boss. Either the boss doesn't respect you or gives you too much work to do or some other problem that you have with your superiors. So those are the two places one should start working at if you want to make uh, your work more enjoyable. How do you bring more variety to the job? Well, Studs Durkel once described supermarket cashiers who have to punch in the numbers of the purchases. This was before we had this kind of electronic strips that were read automatically. So they had to punch the numbers and then crank the register, and it was a very boring, repetitive job. But the ones who enjoyed it uh, developed their own ways of thinking about this thing differently from just having to do this routine work. For instance, one cashier thought that she was playing the piano and she was playing chords with her fingers when she punched in the numbers in the register. And by thinking of it this way as playing the piano instead of playing the register, she could recreate in her mind the kind of sound the register would make if those were keys on a piano. She was actually more accurate than other cashiers, and she felt less alienated from her job by doing so than most others. So, again, here, what we're talking about in terms of variety, variety is partly external, it's partly given to you by the parameters of the job, by the external constraint of the job, but variety is really something that you yourself can create subjectively without changing too much of the external world you change the way you perceive the external world. You see details, you see possibilities that are hidden to the eye of most people or to anybody except yourself. If you look, if you pay attention, you can achieve this transformation and make a job that otherwise would seem boring and have absolutely no variety. You can turn it into something that is 
at least varied enough to keep you going until you find a new level of challenge within that job. And usually, people who learn to enjoy the job are the ones who learn most about it, who become most skilled about it, and the ones who are seen by their superiors as having the motivation, having the initiative to be promoted, to get more challenging jobs later on. So even though the important thing is to have the internal sense of variety, there is also an external payoff that comes from approaching work this way. And the payoff is that you will be recognized as someone who is growing on the job, who is not just letting the external conditions dictate what happens, but someone who changes the situation so that they can make the work into something more than what it is. And that shows an initiative, imagination, motivation, which is what any organization looks for when they are trying to advance people within the organization. In fact, in talking to CEOs and leaders of great organizations, what I'm impressed by is how often these CEOs, especially when they are approaching retirement and they're looking for the people they want to promote to leadership within their organizations, how often what they're looking for is not necessarily somebody who is uh, very able or very ambitious or very highly achieving individual, they are looking more for someone who is intrinsically interested in the job or in the company, someone who is not out for only his or her own personal advantage, somebody who is not using the job as a tool for achieving something personal, but someone who is so intrigued and so invested in whatever activity the, the firm is pursuing that is willing to work hard and is willing to think hard about ways of improving, ways of making the organization grow. So this intrinsic involvement, this enjoyment of the work for its own sake is a signal that a person is responsible and will have the well-being of the company at heart rather than only working for personal advantage. Another obstacle to flow at work is being able to get along with other people, especially with one's superiors. And here, how to make that situation into one more flow-like requires being able to look at the interaction with one's boss, with one's peers, as a challenge, which requires certain skills on your part to meet, to match. And so, again, a question becomes, what kind of goals can you set? How can you get to know better what your boss or what your co-workers want? How do you get information so that you can meet the interaction on an even foot, so that you can earn their respect and at the same time maintain your integrity by showing what you can do, by showing what your needs are, what your goals are, and respecting their goals and their needs. It's a question of communication, primarily. Almost everyone in middle management and above says that the greatest skills they need to learn is communication. And the reason they need to learn those skills is because that's what's needed 
in order to get along with the people who count for so much in the success of one's work life. So communication is a skill that we all need to have, and the more enmeshed in an organization or bureaucracy you are, the more you need to know that, because that's the means, the skill by which you can survive and prosper in a group of people who have divergent goals, divergent interests, and navigating in that situation is the way to be able to not only survive, but eventually to enjoy the human relations that are so important in almost every job. And if you can approach relationships that way, your communication skills are going to improve tremendously. And hopefully what will happen is that you will enjoy dealing even with cantankerous bosses and even with competitive co-workers. And not only are you going to enjoy this more, but presumably you are going to be much more successful at it. And having those two things in place, namely the variety in the job and the ability to communicate and achieve good relations with your superiors and subordinates and peers, having those two in place, the nature of work should improve tremendously. To see more detail how the flow model would work in dealing with some of the typical problems on the job, let's review a few of the problems that we usually encounter at work and see what the flow theory can tell us about it and what kind of prescriptions for action it would suggest. For instance, if you are a manager, one of the things that you encounter quite often is that your workers are not living up to their potential. They don't seem to be motivated. They are not doing as well as you are sure they could be doing. When we try to motivate people, the stick and the carrot, the extrinsic motivators, are obviously well known to every manager. We know how to influence people's behavior by raises, by threats of firing, by the usual extrinsic means. But we don't have a very good idea of how to motivate people internally. That is, how to produce the kind of intrinsic rewards that flow produces on the job. And yet, if you succeed in doing that, you solve a lot of the motivational problems that you usually have. For instance, let's take the case of a subordinate you may have, whom you think has potential, but it's not working up to it. What you would have to identify there is what is blocking the use of potential. Everyone is motivated to use their potential, so it's not that they don't want to use it. It's probably that there's something blocking it. And your job as a manager or superior is to find out what that block is and try to remove it. For some people, the block may be that they are working in an office they don't like. They don't have enough support. They don't have the secretarial or the material support that they need to feel really in control of the situation. You can find out what part of the situation is inhibiting this person from using their potential. Remember that generally the most important factor for motivation is being able to balance the challenges and the skills of your subordinates. It may be that the young person who is not living up to his or her potentials 
does it because they feel that you're not providing them with enough support to use their skills, or they feel that there is not enough challenge for them to work. And generally, if you are able to achieve that balance for your subordinate and make sure that they know exactly what they need to do, that is, their goals are clear, their skills are engaged with the right level of challenge, then their internal reward system will begin to kick in and they will start working with much greater enthusiasm. In fact, this whole topic leads into another question, a related question, which is that of stress. Many of us feel that we are on the edge of burnout, that there is too much stress in our jobs. This situation has to be reconceptualized a certain way, which Flo helps us to understand, because we have to realize that stress is not an external factor. It's useful to think of the external causes of stress as strain. Now, we have a lot of strain in our jobs, but with the same amount of strain, one person may feel stressed and another may not feel stressed at all. He or she may feel challenged or involved in the job. So the stress is really our response to an external strain. And whether you are stressed or not is to a large extent dependent on your response to the external situation, and it's not really caused directly by the external situation. So the question of how you interpret the strain, how important it is for you to, for instance, perform at 120% or 100%, depending on what requirements are presented to you, that's your choice. And very often, the stress that we experience psychologically and that often has physical counterparts in illness and nervous breakdowns and so forth, very often this stress is not caused really by the external situation, but, for instance, by how self-conscious you are, how much on the line you feel every time you are given a job by your boss, every time you get a request, if in addition to the task that you are given, you are also burdening yourself with all kinds of expectations of failure or fear of not succeeding, of not being able to impress, to achieve, and worrying about how you will look when this thing is going to be carried through when the task is finished. If you put too many of those burdens on you, then in addition to the external strain, you will feel the stress that is given by your expectations and by the attention you are devoting to these self-generated problems. Now, it's true, though, that there are times when the strain is too high and no one in his right mind would be able to take it without feeling stress. There are bosses who are unrealistic. There are times when every company has to work harder than usual, when there are economic situations where jobs get readjusted and new responsibilities get thrown on you. Under those conditions, it's not that you are putting stress on yourself, but you are given so much strain that you are really under stress and there's nothing you can do with it. If you want to do the job, you will feel stressed. So at that point, you have to start taking an active role in redesigning the challenge that you are under. 
That means providing a good argument to your superiors that under these conditions you cannot continue working because of an impairment in the general productivity both of your unit, yourself, if these conditions continue. That will work especially if you have some alternatives, if you have thought about how to redesign the flow of challenges that comes to you or to your unit and you can propose an alternative that will make, again, the balance between challenges and skills close enough so that you and your people can work with complete dedication and efficiency instead of feeling stressed. So there are no golden rules. There are no simple solutions. What is important is that in every condition, in every predicament on the job, you pay attention to the amount of challenges, to the potential skills, to the goals, and how these can be put together in a way that there is a harmonious response to the challenges rather than a feeling of being either bored and unchallenged or feeling that you have to work in fast forward to meet the demands that are put on you. If you pay attention, if you keep in mind the simple rules that make a flow experience possible, then you will be able to change many of the conditions that now produce tension and conflict into conditions that are harmonious and allow enjoyment to take place. One of the most interesting paradoxes and most puzzling findings in my research about optimal experience, about flow, has been that for most people, work is much closer to a flow experience than is their free time at home. This is true not only for surgeons or managers, but also for assembly line workers and clerical workers, because their jobs have more of the characteristic that flow activities have. For instance, in almost every job, there is some clarity as to what needs to be done, so the goals are clear. You do get feedback either from boss, co-workers, or from the nature of the job. You know when you did a job well. You have the satisfaction of even filing away things efficiently or typing a neat letter. So you get feedback from what you do. And the concentration is possible. You don't get as distracted as you may be at home when you have children and telephones ringing and a variety of conflicting things to do. For instance, we found that working women, when they are at work, they think at most about two things at the same moment. But when they are at home, they have to think about an average of seven different things. And so this kind of distraction, this kind of excessive and disparate demands on attention is more a characteristic of being out of the job than being on the job. So jobs do provide flow-like experiences for people. And yet the paradox is, the strange thing is that despite that fact, people would rather not work and would want to have more free time at home even though what they do at home lacks the positive quality of experience that work provides. Now, why is this happening? Well, as I hinted at before, a lot of the things we do at home 
have no structure. Uh, there are no demands, there are no clear goals. We don't get feedback for how well we are doing. The nature of the work tends to be repetitive. And so many people feel their energy level dropping, their interest dropping, their uh, feeling of skills dropping as they go home. Now, in the past, this was not always true. In fact, typically, people did not make a sharp differentiation between work and leisure time. For instance, if you lived in a farming economy, which was typical of this country until 100 years ago, and it's still typical in much of the world now, in a farming economy, you went out, you did the tasks of milking the cows and sowing the grain on the field and working in the orchard, whatever you had to do, and then you came home, and at home, instead of relaxing and watching television, what you did was you um, perhaps stitched a quilt or worked as a carpenter to make a new table. You may have been uh, singing uh, songs or, or working on a musical instrument. In fact, almost everybody played a musical instrument in the past, but now we don't need to. We figure that with stereo systems and television and videotapes, the entertainment is coming to us from outside. We don't have to provide it ourselves. And as a result of that, we are developing a very strangely passive leisure time. We have developed a kind of consumer orientation towards free time, which reduces the enjoyment that we have in our free time. So we created the space of freedom in which we don't know what to do. For many people, we find, as a result of our research, that the worst part of the week is Sunday morning between 10 and 12, roughly. By 10 o'clock, most people had had breakfast, read the papers, and if they haven't gone to church, then they have this block of time which is completely open and they don't know what to do with it. Their moods go down, they feel more and more depressed until about noon or one o'clock when they decide to do something, watch a TV program or go upstairs and clean the attic or mow the lawn or go visit a relative or whatever. Once the decision is made, the goal is focused again, you feel that you know what you want to do and then you get yourself in gear and the depression lifts. But until you know what you want to do, you feel depressed. And this is, to a less strong degree, this is what happens in free time in general. That is, we lack a structure, we lack goals, we lack the skills to amuse ourselves in a way that makes us feel that we are growing, that we are increasing in complexity. And therefore, the nature of free time tends to be strangely unproductive, unproductive of strong positive experience, a flow experience, and unproductive in terms of growth of skills. One of the dangers that people encounter when they start enjoying their job, though, is that the job can become somewhat addictive. Uh, you develop what nowadays is called workaholism. In other words, all you can do is work and nothing else interests you anymore. This is a real danger. It's a danger of uh, any flow activity can become addictive if that's the only way you can experience flow. So the cure for that is to diversify. 
The cure for it is not to become specialized, not to respond to only one set of challenges, not to develop only one set of skills. The problem of workaholism is that as you enjoy your job more and more, you derive less and less enjoyment from your free time, from being with your family. You neglect other responsibilities, you neglect your family, you don't realize how many other ways to enjoy yourself there are, and so you become too dependent on the one single enjoyment. Now, the danger in this is that sooner or later, you may have to retire. Most jobs have a limit as to how long you can perform them. Even surgery does. You become too old to wield uh, your instruments with the precision required. And so now you are out of the game that provided enjoyment for you. There's nothing more to do, and you haven't developed the skills to enjoy anything else. And that is a dangerous time. It's a dangerous time when you approach retirement if the only skills you had were focused on your job. So the way to make sure that you can experience flow in your life for as long as possible and in as many different ways as possible is to begin to diversify as soon as possible and begin to enjoy family life, begin to enjoy the community responsibilities or challenges to improve your local hospital, to improve the school system and make sure that the political system is working well. All of these can provide enjoyable challenges And as you begin to learn the skills to deal with them, you will be prepared in case retirement is approaching or even before that to take on the opportunities for enjoyment outside of your job. A woman named Dorothy recalls how she was able to find enjoyment in solitude. I moved to this tiny island in northern Minnesota so that I could find peace and solitude. After my husband died and my children grew up, I decided it was the best place to be. It feels just like home. I have flower tubs, garden gnomes, signs with poetry or rhymes or corny jokes on all my trees, And indoors, I keep a lot of my favorite items. Every day, I follow my schedule. Wake up by 5 o'clock, check the hens for eggs, milk the goat, split some wood, make breakfast, wash, sew, fish, and so on. In the evenings, I usually read and write. Although I get occasional visits from fishermen passing through, most of my time is spent alone. I don't mind it. I keep myself busy. Finding flow in your relationships can be one of the most fulfilling aspects of your life. This side addresses creating this optimal experience in your relationship with yourself and with others. When Sigmund Freud, the father of psychoanalysis, was asked what a person should do to be happy, he answered, work and love. It is true that work and relationships with other people are the two main planks of adult life. 
They take up most of our time and they can produce the worst aggravations as well as the deepest joys. Therefore, our life can be vastly improved if we apply the principles of flow to our relationships. First of all, to improve the quality of life, it is important that we learn to live with ourselves. On the average, people in our society spend about one-third of their waking time by themselves, and this part of the day is often the worst. Most people feel very lonely when they have to be alone, left to their own devices. The depression you may experience in solitude is often what drives people to drink or to drugs. But if you can learn to control your consciousness in solitude, a great number of potentially exciting activities becomes possible. Similarly, relations with other people, which are often the source of friction and conflict, can be modified so that they help happiness instead of inhibiting it. Family life, friendships, and even occasional interactions at parties can be extremely enjoyable if lived in terms of the principles of flow. Flow and Solitude First of all, it's useful to think about what you do when you're alone. Most people spend between 20 and 40% of their waking time alone. Again, for most people, every dimension of the quality of experience gets worse when they are alone. They are more sad, more passive, more depressed. They have lower self-esteem. They feel duller and less involved when alone. Is this true of you too? Is this how you feel when you're alone? Or do you know how you can control your consciousness mobilize your energy so that you can do things like plan for the future, visualize what you will be doing next day on the job or when you are with your friends. Can you meditate? Do you have a hobby? Do you have some kind of artistic activity like painting or writing that you can do so that you don't need to depend completely on external stimulation to become mentally engaged? Unfortunately, most people, when they come home after a day and job, they feel that they are too exhausted to do anything constructive, to do anything that really produces flow in their lives. So the easy way that we often take is to simply plop down on the sofa and turn on television. This is one of the ways we have learned to take the edge of depression off our mind and it's certainly one of the easiest. But unfortunately, watching television, for instance, is not a solution that really works for a long period. For most people, when they watch TV, they feel just a bit better than what they do when they have nothing else to do. They still feel, though, passive, depressed. They still have a low self-esteem. They still feel dull instead of creative. Because uh, television presents information on which we don't have to work creatively. We just process the visual stimuli that we see, and we don't have to either decode the information as we do when we read, which is a much more active activity, and we don't have to do anything creative to organize the 
information we are presented with. We have to only passively absorb it. So generally, as one watches TV, one tends to feel worse and worse the more one watches it. Instead of feeling better, you tend to feel worse. Now, it's also true, though, that you can watch TV in an active mode, in a more creative mode. And the way to do it is, like with every other flow activity, you have to set a goal. For instance, you have to know what programs you want to watch and why you're watching it. So you choose and you don't randomly have your attention captured by whatever is on the screen. As long as you have a goal and you set yourself up to watch this particular program, then you can also become more involved in it by using skills in looking at what you are watching in a way that it becomes an interactive process that is you are critically watching. You are supposed, for instance, that you're watching a drama on PBS or you're even watching a police serial on one of the main channels. You can watch that critically. That is, you set up certain expectations. You wonder what is going to happen. You look at whether the actors or the screenwriter is doing his job well. And you are not just uncritically following what you're doing, but you are letting your mind interact with the material in a more active and creative way. So what we find actually in research is that people who watch television in this way get out of it a much better quality of experience. They enjoy it more and they learn more from it. TV becomes a waste of time when you watch it in complete passivity. And then the quality of experience deteriorates and you don't learn anything from it. So the way to cope with solitude is to take an active role. And if you do program your time and you develop goals and you uh, use your skills, then solitude can become the best part of your day, something to look forward to instead of avoiding. And the people who look at solitude like that actually find that that is an opportunity for enjoyment and growth instead of something to be dreaded and avoided as much as possible. If you don't know how to cope with solitude, then you will be scared to be alone and you will be looking for anything that will take your mind off the kind of chaos that comes to consciousness when we don't have a goal. And often, in order to avoid this solitude, they get involved in relationships that are destructive. They end up getting involved in activities that are dangerous, like gambling or the use of drugs anything to get away from the dreaded loneliness that awaits them. But on the other hand, if you have the skills, if you know how to use this amazing opportunity that we have when we are alone with nothing to do, then this can become a part of life which is incredibly enriching. But being alone is not the only opportunity that many of us miss or waste. The other one is what comes with family life, with the kind of interaction we have with people who are close to us. Flow and the Family 
Unfortunately, many people believe that once they are married and have children, then their home life is secure and they need no longer invest any effort in it. So after work, they come back to a warm home where everyone is happy and contented. This is what people assume that happens after marriage. But unfortunately, it does not. If you just come home from work hoping that everything will be harmonious and serene at home, you are probably in for an unpleasant surprise. Working with executives who are in their 40s, late 40s and 50s, one of the things that I have to deal with over and over again is the feeling of surprise and resentment that many of these people have about the fact that their families are breaking up, that they come home and there's no one at home. The children are doing something that is off on their own. The wives have developed their own interests and they are no longer interested in staying in a home where there is no input of emotion and intelligence from their husbands. These men who may be very successful at their jobs tend to feel suddenly deprived of the security and comfort that they expected would be theirs in their family life. And now, in many cases, it's too late to do anything about it. What they have missed, these people, during the last 20 years is the realization that family life can be incredibly enjoyable and satisfying and rewarding if you take the time and if you take the energy that you need to invest in it. A family won't grow by itself just as a business or a corporation won't grow unless there is attention, psychic energy invested in it, unless people are motivated to work in it. And similarly, a family cannot survive out of good intentions, out of love, unless you invest energy, attention in it. We think now that quality time is what counts, but quality packaged into five minutes of interaction does not work. There is no quality that can carry through in five minutes. We need a lot of time to understand what our children want. We have to realize what their goals are. We have to realize what their dreams are. We have to know what their skills are. And we have to help them to match these dreams and the skills with opportunities that we help them recognize and create. We have to know how to transfer to them the vision, the dreams that we have in our life so that they have something to follow. And the same with our spouses. We have to realize that relationships change with time and needs change with time. We have to discover what are the things we can do with our spouse that are fun at age 35, 40, 45, 50. And what is fun, what is possible, what is enjoyable will change. The interest of our spouses will change. And unless we keep abreast of what's happening in the family, unless we pay attention to see what are the new things that we can do that will be enjoyable, the family is going to disintegrate. And then at age 50 or so, we'll find ourselves alone. And those whom we loved, but we did not take the care to invest attention in, will have gone on their own way. And that is a lot of what happens to people who miss the fact that relationship needs the kind of tender loving care that any other human activity like a business job requires. 
And if we don't learn how to make the family life enjoyable for everyone, then the family will not keep together. Now there is a lot of compromise we have to learn because maybe, you know, your wife likes to go to the opera or to an auction, an antique auction, and you like to go and watch car racing or motocross or you like to go fishing. And left to themselves, these natural interests will pull you apart unless you learn how to compromise and go to an antique auction one weekend and go fishing together the other weekend so that you learn why the other person likes what they are doing, what kind of skills they have in doing what they enjoy doing, and you learn some of those skills yourself so that you can begin to enjoy these different activities. And of course, if you have children, as teenagers, their interests are bound to diverge from that of their parents, and you have to let them go their way. But at the same time, you can keep things together family traditions that are enjoyable, that they will still like, and if they quit for a few years, they will be glad to return to later on. Family traditions like vacations in certain parts of the country where you can all learn and do things together, or common activities of going, seeing things together that you can do, or activities such as decorating Christmas trees, or observing holidays, or family things together where you cook and eat and do things in ways that are unique to your family, which you will remember as being part of what gave your family joy and allowed every member of the family to participate. So these little things, these things that require forethought, require developing certain skills, developing goals, makes the family continue to go together. Of course, women are still better at finding flow in the family than men. Here are, for example, some of the things women told us that they enjoyed most in their lives. For instance, one of them said, Oh yes, when I'm working with my daughter, when she's discovering something new, a new cookie recipe that she has accomplished, that she has made herself, an artistic work she's done that she's proud of. Her reading is one thing that she's really into, and we read together. She reads to me, and I read to her, and that's a time when I sort of lose touch with the rest of the world. I'm totally absorbed in what I'm doing. But this type of delicate, almost artistic interaction with children is not just women's work. It is essential for men to be involved in such enjoyable activities with their sons and daughters also. A good example would be what was shown in the recent movie, A River Runs Through It, where the greatest moments in the lives of their sons were going out fishing with their father. Unless you enjoy doing complex things together with the family, it will soon become boring and the children will drift away and marriages will crumble. Flow and friendship. One of the most important experiences in our lives are friendships. When we do our studies of everyday life using the pages, we find that everything people do together with friends becomes much more enjoyable than when you do it alone, whether it's eating a meal or going shopping or driving a car or just having a conversation, 
the quality of experience goes up tremendously. In fact, we find that people enjoy their friends more on the whole than they enjoy their uh, spouse, children. The family, most people feel that is something given, something to be endured, but not something to be enjoyed, whereas friendships are always more positive. Now, I don't think this needs to happen like this. I think the family can be much more enjoyable if we learn how to make it so. But in present time, I must say that friends are generally experienced as being more enjoyable, that we can get a higher quality of life when we are with our friends than when we are with anyone else. This is true even of older people. Studies done with senior citizens who were in retirement homes found that even at age 80, you enjoy the company of friends more than you enjoy the company of your family. Now, given the fact that friends are so important, it's really very sad to realize how few friends most people have. Compared to almost any other culture in the United States, we tend to have fewer friends as adults than it's true in other cultures. This is, in a way, natural because we enjoy a much greater mobility geographically. We move from one part of the country to the other. We move from one job to the other and from one part of the world to the other much more frequently than anyone ever moved before in any other historical period. Now, on the other hand, we have to pay a price for this great mobility. The price we pay is that we cut our ties to people, we cut our ties to communities much more abruptly than anyone else did before. And the price we pay is that in adulthood we have few friends, and this makes life poorer to a great extent. We have to learn to cultivate our friends. Our friends will not continue to exist unless we devote energy to them. Like everything else, any relationship, any activity, we have to invest psychic energy. We have to pay attention to them. We have to keep up with them, call them, write to them if we want to keep up our friendship. That's the problem we have so often with other people is that we treat them simply as tools. We only pay attention to them because we want something out of them for our sake. So we treat them as dispensable commodities, not as individuals who are interesting and important for their own sake. But if you take the first step and you invest some of yourself in the relationship, and it's really like an investment, and it's risky, like any investment is risky. You're putting something up that can be ignored, rejected, or exploited in turn, and you have to take that risk. How to create flow with others. Like any other type of interaction, you can have flow with other people when you have a common goal, when you are interacting with these people towards that goal, where your skills are matched with the skills of the other person and out of the interaction something new comes up. Think, for instance, about a um, jazz improvisation group, okay? You hear these instruments, the um, cornet and the saxophone and the guitar or whatever, playing with each other 
proposing a theme, the other instrument takes it up and embellishes on it, and then the theme is repeated and it's played with in different keys, in different tempos. That kind of improvisation is what a relationship is about, a conversation and interaction. You say that you want to go to the movie, the other person says, well, what movie should we look at? You negotiate, you state your interest, and then you settle on going to the movie or not. You may go to the beach instead or to a restaurant. But the point is that you develop a goal together by stating your interest and by communicating to each other what your preferences are and then settling on a common goal. And then as you go, as you are there, you keep exchanging ideas, you keep exchanging emotions, feelings. And as you work these together, you are both stimulating the other person to think deeper or feel deeper about their own experience. And you learn by sharing these thoughts and experiences with the other person. So it becomes an interactive action that is enjoyable and growth producing. Now, this can happen in any situation, and it can be among friends, among lovers, among family members. The important thing is that the communication of ideas, thoughts, experiences get shared and are stimulating to each other. One example of how you can turn even a potentially very threatening interaction into something positive and growth producing occurred when our son Mark, uh, at age 12, returning from school, had been accosted by three young men who were obviously in kind of a desperate situation. My son was walking through the park. He took a shortcut from school and walked in this rather solitary path through the park. And these three men stopped him and told him that they were going to take away whatever he had on him. And if he screamed or ran or resisted in any way, they would shoot him. And one of them had a gun in his pocket and the others were saying, you're going to get shot if you don't give us immediately what you have. So Mark had no more than a quarter in his pocket, but he also had a watch. And so they took the quarter and they took the watch. And they told him to walk towards home without turning, without saying anything. And they walked in the opposite direction. Well, apparently Mark walked two or three steps towards home. And then he turned around and said, hey, guys, could you wait a minute? And they said, no, no, go, go, be quiet or we'll shoot. And He said, no, no, uh, listen, uh, what I want to tell you is that that watch you took was given to me by my mother for my birthday two years ago. It's not worth anything to you. It's an old watch. It's almost broke. But but to me, it means a lot because it was given for my birthday by my mother. And so the guys kept hushing him and trying to push him away. But finally... He was so insistent that they decided to take a vote whether to shoot him or to give him back the watch. And the vote ended up being two to one for returning the watch. And so he took the watch and walked home and was very proud. He told us what happened. And of course, my wife and I almost fainted and told him why he had been so foolish to expose his life for the sake of the watch. After all, this man could have been on drugs or desperate and could have shot him. 
but innocent as he was at the time, he said, well, I thought um, that if I explained to these people why this watch was important, they would realize it and they would not harm me for it. Well, he was lucky. I certainly don't recommend this as a solution to similar situations. But what I think the story illustrates is that relationships or interactions, even interactions of this type, can be changed if you treat people not as uh, robbers in this case, not as people you detest or you mistrust, but as reasonable human beings who share your feelings. You communicate your feelings, you explain your feelings, and uh, very often you get a response that matches your response. It's not that everybody's out there to take advantage of you. There are people like that. But it's amazing how often you can establish a relationship and interaction which is smooth and meaningful and rewarding and even enjoyable if you take the trouble to treat other people as partners, as shared members of a community, rather than opponents or competitors or people that you have to use rather than enjoy the company of. Flow and Strangers It's not only relationship with family, friends that can enrich one's life, but paradoxically enough, it may be the way you treat strangers, the way you deal with people you don't know that can also make a big difference in the quality of your experience. For instance, um, you probably know that in France, Italy, in many countries, Spain, People spend a great amount of time sitting at tables, outdoor cafes, watching the parade of people walking up and down. And the reason that is such an enjoyable thing for these people, in fact, that's the thing they look mostly forward in their days to be able to do this. The reason it's so enjoyable is because as you look at each person passing by, you don't know these people, but you can imagine what they are doing, what their life is like, who their friends are, what their profession is whether they are happy or not, and if so, why, whether they have affairs, whether they are faithful to their husbands or wives. All of these questions, you can match up with the people and with their physiognomy, with the way they walk, with their expressions and so forth. And this is highly enjoyable. It's like watching a movie in which you are writing your own script. You are casting your own characters. Um, looking around, looking at the people, imagining, uh, creating little stories about what they are and who they are and what they are doing can be a way of passing time which is enjoyable and actually contributes to developing certain skills. The skill of recognizing, characterizing people, of empathizing, of, of learning to feel the way other people feel, which is important in any real relationship or in any business transaction. So this is not a waste of time, and it's a way of filling time that otherwise would be wasted with something which is enjoyable and potentially growth-producing. Who we are with makes a big difference to the quality of our lives. For someone who has not learned to control consciousness, Loneliness is frightening, and the company of other people is often threatening or boring. 
But if you have developed an autotelic personality, you are no longer at the mercy of your surroundings. Having mastered flow in solitude and in company, you need no longer feel lonely when you are alone and you can transform routine and even painful interactions with others into enjoyable experiences. Instead of letting your social surroundings determine whether to feel happy or not, it is you who will be in charge. A woman describes her feelings of extreme involvement and pleasure as she shares her skills and experiences of success with her children. I try to involve my children in my work, especially my older daughter who's been coming to the office and working with me. There are frequently times when we are home or driving around and talking about my work or something like that. There's sort of a sense of joy and accomplishment in what I'm doing, and I'm able to bring them into it also. By creating flow experiences throughout our life, we learn to lead lives of constant fulfillment. Professor Csikszentmihalyi explains how you can make this ideal possible. A few years ago, I received a letter from a reader who was at that time in his mid-80s. He wrote that when he read my book Flow, he immediately recognized the experience. It was what he had felt as a young man in the army over 60 years earlier when he and his fellows in the field artillery used to unhitch the horses from the guns and ride them to play polo. It had been such an exhilarating experience. Nothing else afterwards came close. But after reading the book, the man wrote, he realized that what he felt playing polo may not be unique and there could be other ways to get the same joyful feeling. He tried to do a few new things suggested in the book, and lo and behold, he found that they were also lots of fun. He concluded the letter thanking me for the revelation. I was, of course, very pleased that the old gentleman had improved the quality of his life, but I was also saddened to think of all the opportunities he had missed in the 60 years in between. Yet, there are many people out there who experience flow once or twice, perhaps in a game or in a love affair, and then spend the rest of their years thinking back with nostalgia at that high point in their lives. One of Leo Tolstoy's best short novels describes such a person. The character of the story is Ivan Illich, a respected judge in the Russia of the Tsars. Ivan is ill, lying in bed, racked by constant pain. Actually, he's dying, although no one, least of all, Ivan, wants to admit it. Reduced to helplessness, Ivan is forced to think back on his past, and he realizes with horror that it had all been wasted. For as far back as he can remember, he always did what others expected him to do, never what he felt like doing. He studied, gambled, made love, made friends, climbed the steps of his career, because this was what everybody else seemed to think he should do. He became rich and successful, but he never had a close friend, a true love, or an hour of true enjoyment. Just before dying, a memory from childhood bursts into Ivan's consciousness. He is perhaps six or seven years old, 
running through a field of flowers, with the wind in his hair, the sun shining, the birds singing. It is the only happy moment he can recall from the dreary years of his long life. All too often, the story of Ivan Illich is also the story of many of our lives. As children, we are able to find flow in almost anything we do spontaneously. A child enjoys at first just moving their fingers, moving their limbs, learning to walk. Each one of these is a challenge that requires the full concentration, that requires developing, stretching our abilities to the utmost. And after that, learning a language, learning to read, all of these activities that we develop spontaneously, but with certain difficulty as we grow up, this keeps us fully in flow, just building a house of blocks or learning to ride a bicycle. All of these are sources of enjoyment. As children, we learn to pay attention, to focus, to make goals, to balance our challenges and skills, to constantly readjust them. And in a normal childhood, this process of enjoyable growth is normal. The child doesn't have to be privileged to experience joy as he or she grows up. But unfortunately, too many of these joyful children turn into surly teenagers or dispirited adults and bitter old people. The life cycle from early childhood to old age provides distinctly different opportunities for enjoyment. From the physical activity of youth to the reflective introspection of the elderly, each season of a person's life has its own particular strength. Flow and Childhood it is as important to know how to enrich the lives of our children, our teenagers, as it is to prepare ourselves for the years ahead. Psychologists such as Jean Piaget and Eric Erikson have studied how we grow from infancy and childhood through the life cycle and develop constantly new opportunities for action. Now, many of us never take those opportunities, but they are there and they open up at different times in a schedule, in a sequence that is possible to see when you study what happens to people as they grow up. For instance, in infancy and childhood, Piaget has shown us that we interact with the environment through sensory motor channels. That is, everything we learn from the environment is through our senses and through the movement of our bodies. And it's here, through the movement of bodies, through physical movement, games, wordplay, puzzles, that we learn to interact with the environment. And in a normal childhood, the opportunities for such involvement are there. Unfortunately, not all children grow up in normal environments. They may have either no stimulation at all or too much of it. But if we can then graduate from this early sensory motor development into more skillful uses of our body, and this comes as fine motor coordination develops by third, fourth year, our children can begin to learn how to use music, how to use drawing as ways of expressing and developing their body and their mind. 
later at age four or five reading and telling of stories and the kind of symbolic representation of the world becomes possible and then that opens up a whole new realm of flow experiences. At the same time, as the skills of the child develop, we have to also provide enough security and enough love for them so that they can develop enough self-confidence so that flow can become easy and spontaneous, so that they don't grow up defensive, they don't grow up worried, they don't grow up feeling that they can't do anything in the world, that they are inferior, and so forth. If the conditions are not too good at this time, the child can become too shy, introspective, not sure enough, or on the other hand, the child becomes hyperactive. It needs so high levels of stimulation that everything else seems boring and only the risky, aggressive, hyperactive behavior can register on the nervous system of the child. Now, this, of course, can have chemical origins, often has chemical origins, but it's often aggravated also by the environment in which the child grows up. Now, in an optimal environment where the child has security and harmony and love on the one hand and stimulation and enrichment on the other, then the child is always in flow. It's always doing something new, always learning, having new interests. Unfortunately, this natural way of growing up and enjoying the process of growing is often stopped the moment the child enters schools. The moment the child begins to be in school, he or she can no longer set goals, cannot match challenges with skills at the level that's optimal, Instead, the child has to be sitting in a confined environment and pay attention to goals that they have no choice over. The goals in the classroom are chosen by um, educational bureaucracy and finally filtered down to the teacher. So the child doesn't know why he or she does what he's doing. There's the goals are not clear. The feedback is not clear. It's a very unnatural environment for a child. Instead of exploring and following their interests, they have to comply with the requirements of an um, adult world which they don't understand. So, for many children, the spontaneous flow that is a birthright of all human beings ends all too soon once they enter school. Now, luckily, there are others, and a good number of them, who find the challenges of the academic assignments enough to feel that they are growing, that they are learning, they are developing skills, self-confidence. If they can't find these, if they can't find the challenges of the academic environment that matches their skills, what happens is an increase in low self-esteem, an increase in boredom, and a general apathy, a kind of lack of interest, a lack of joy in their activities. So they come home tired and bored, and it seems like they have been put essentially almost into some kind of zombie-like state. An example of how difficult it is to find enjoyment in school is the example of my son Mark, who was very gifted academically. He ended up going to Harvard and Stanford and getting a PhD in Chinese. But when he was in fifth grade, I remember asking him at the end of the year, what was the most 
enjoyable moment he remembered of the nine months he had been in school in fifth grade. And he thought about it, thought about it, and finally he said, well, it was when my teacher collected the milk money from the class and then gave me this money to take up to the principal, and I had to go out of the classroom, I had to walk down the hall, up the stairs, down the other stairs, and with all this money in my pocket, all the money was probably $5 at the most, but to him, this feeling of responsibility, of challenge, of a goal that was clear to him, he had to navigate, find his way, go to the principal, give him the money. This was the most exciting thing that happened in nine months of school. Now, this child who was gifted in many ways and had a good academic preparation, but even for him, there was not enough in the schools to get engaged, to get involved. And this is one of the problems I think we have in our culture is that we don't know how to engage young people in activities that are meaningful to them, that are challenging enough. We think that just because we as adults decide they have to do these things, they will do it somehow. And maybe they will do it, but in the process they will forget the ability. They will have grown out of the ability to structure their own life, to set goals, to enjoy the use of their skills in a situation that is under their control. And somehow, I think this is one of the problems that then we reap the fruits of when the children grow up into adults who are not really interested in their jobs and end up in a life that is not very satisfying to them. Flow and Adolescence In the teenage years, in adolescence, a whole new set of opportunities for action presents themselves to a child. Here, the puberty brings in the whole new hormonal desires that start at that time and that begin adult sexuality. So, at this point, friendships, running risk, trying one's limits, discovering who one is, and building a self become the major goals of a growing person. Unless there are opportunities for friendship, for making friendships, for engaging in relationships, for demonstrating who one is by doing serious things, by occasionally taking risks, by exposing oneself to failure, but pushing a little bit of the envelope until one knows who one is, by trying as hard as possible to get to the limits of one's abilities. Unless one has these opportunities, it's very difficult to enjoy these teenage years. The reason we have so many discontented and apathetic adolescents is because we don't create environments for them where they can do these things. We have these huge suburban developments where one bedroom next to the other with a few shopping malls and occasionally there's an athletic field thrown in where at least you can do some sports as a young man and find out who you are, what you can do. But more than that, it's a very sterile environment. There is not that much you can try. There's not that much you can do. So as a teenager, you essentially have very few avenues for exploring your identity. There is the school where you can do academic things, you can do some athletic stuff, you can hang out at the mall, 
But serious stuff is very difficult to explore, serious activities that really test your skills. In fact, in this age, probably the best things that we offer teenagers are the extracurricular activities in school where they can learn to put together a newspaper or put on a play or play in a band. These extracurriculars teach skills, they teach discipline, they challenge a student to do their best. But unfortunately, in many schools, these activities, these extracurricular activities are the first ones to get the axe when there's a budget crunch. Um, you disband the band, you abolish art, you take away these opportunities that more than anything else keep teenagers feeling that they are growing, that they are learning and growing something that they want to do. Flow and adulthood. After the time of adolescence, when uh, we discover who we are, when develop our identity, the next stage of life, according to Eric Erickson, who has studied how people grow and what challenges they face as they grow older, the next stage of life is one that is called intimacy. And this is the time when after having more or less found out who we are by testing our limits, by trying different things, we are now ready to share with another person, to come closer to another person and learn through relationships rather than learning through activities, through doing things. Now we are sharing and that's how we grow, through intimacy. Often this means developing a permanent uh, a romantic relationship or a permanent marriage or other form in which intimacy can be established and reinforced. But even if not in that form, it's very important for a person to learn to get out of oneself, to learn the joys of sharing, sharing ideas, sharing feelings, sharing activities with someone else. If one doesn't learn that intimacy, the possibilities of sharing, it's very easy to become power-hungry, to become an overachiever, somebody who is so wrapped up in himself or herself that the only thing that counts is the successes, um, material successes that one accomplishes. And that exclusive focus with material success becomes an obstacle, a hindrance to experience flow in many other areas of life that can be enriching, that can be very important. Flow and Middle Age The next stage of life, which usually begins in one's mid-30s and continues even to the late 50s, is a stage that Erickson called one of generativity. Generativity is, in addition to sharing, it involves the passing on of one's values, one's ideas, one's identity to a new generation, to younger people. As the name generativity implies, this can be done in a physiological way, that passing on one's genes, after all, 
one's genes have the blueprint of one's temperament, of one's uh, identity, and passing them on in children is one way of um, continuing one's being, of transmitting one's being to a next generation. But that's not the only way to be generative. It's possible to reproduce, instead of one's genes, to reproduce one's ideas, one's feelings, one's experiences. And that's why it is at this point, uh, mid-30s to mid-50s, that the best mentors are made. Uh, mentoring is one way to be generative, helping younger people, helping others to learn one's knowledge, learn one's values, and in that sense continue what's important to us in this life for the next generation. This is the time when being concerned with um, permanence, with transmission of values, one can become an, a leader. It is the time of life when other younger people begin to look up to one because of one's experience. And leadership and helping others, being generative, being a mentor, being a father or a mother, open up a whole new realm of opportunities. And if one develops the skills to match, then being generative is a whole new flow opportunity that is there in earlier life. Now you can do it because it's the time of your life to be generative. It's the time when you have enough experience, you have enough knowledge, and you have clarified your own values enough so you can begin to pass them on. If you don't take on this opportunity, it's easy to become cynical. It's easy to feel that, well, the world ends with you. There's nothing after you, nothing interesting is going to happen. So people who become cynical end up enjoying disrupting other people, disrupting institutions, disrupting for the sake of disinterest, or, or actually um, they feel that, well, it's not worth much uh, what happens once you pass on. Whereas if you learn to be generative, then you have a stake in the future. You think that what happens in the future will be important, and you can work towards it. Flow and the Later Years Finally, the last uh, stage of life, according to Erickson, is one of integrity. Integrity describes the attempt to make a whole of one's life. Uh, the word integrity comes from the Latin word for wholeness, for something which is together. Now you have a chance to reflect on what happened, to understand what went on in your life, what the meaning of the events that you experienced, the meaning of the relationship you had. And now is the time to, as a result of your reflections, to become somewhat wise. That is, to interpret, connect, explain to yourself what happened, accept what happened, and enjoy the memory of your life and enjoy the ability now of seeing what is the thread, what is that kept your life together, what made it the kind of life it was. And if you don't achieve this integration of your past into your present, 
it's easy to fall into the opposite state of despair, of feeling that it was all wasted or it was all meaningless, it didn't make any sense. And people who are this in the later part of their life fall into this sense of despair, they typically lack enjoyment in what they do. They don't feel that anything is worth doing, and they kind of decline in a state of uh, increasing detachment from life, increasing uh, bitterness about themselves and their past and the lack of outlook in the future. Of course, uh, the integrity that is the major task of old age is not the only opportunity for action of uh, for old people. In fact, it's amazing how many new opportunities there are for action, for learning new skills in old age, partly because you don't have the pressures anymore that you had earlier for making a living, for bringing up a family, being responsible for children, etc. It's amazing what you find people doing uh, once they retired, if they have developed the skills to control their consciousness, to develop new skills. For instance, um, a good example would be um, a friend of mine who is a very famous physicist. Two of his students became Nobel Prize winners, and he almost got one himself, which he refused in order to give it to a younger student of him who he claimed had more to do with the discovery than him. So he had been generative in his early stage of life because he had been a good mentor. But eventually, he had to retire also, later than usual, because he was 70 when he retired. But from being a a famous physicist, the head of a great laboratory, he suddenly had a lot of free time. So what did he do? He figured that there was an interesting relationship between physics and cooking. He became interested in how to change the characteristics of raw food into cooked food. So he learned to be a gourmet cook. He went to France. He learned to be a cordon bleu cook. Then when he was 75 or 76, he published his first cookbook in Europe, which became a bestseller because he approached it uh, with his kind of scientific training. It wasn't your usual cookbook. It was one that explained the um, physics and the chemistry behind the combination of food. Now, I tasted some of his cooking, and I can guarantee you it's very good. It doesn't taste like the food cooked by a scientist. But uh, what made special his uh, recipes is this kind of understanding of the basic chemistry of food. Now, since that first cookbook, he has published three more, and he's one of the most read cooks in Europe. This is just one example. I mean, uh, you go from one very different realm to another. You have the chance now to learn new skills, and except for those uh, elderly people who are physically incapacitated, and unfortunately, there are many of those. But normal aging does not mean that you are going to lose your skills. It means that you have given new opportunities, more time, fewer responsibilities. For many people, it's now is the time to really brush up on the kind of skills that they didn't have the time, the energy to learn before. So... 
Whether we like it or not, everything inside us and around us is in constant change. Our bodies get stronger for a while and then they grow weaker. The expectations others have of us grow steadily higher and then they decline. Sexual desires burst into fire when we are teenagers and then burn with an ever gentler flame to the end of our days. What we enjoyed doing when we were 10 year olds may be embarrassing a few years later. On the other hand, every year something that we could not even understand when we were younger might give us unexpected joy. Flow is not granted to us once and for all. If we wish to enjoy life to its end, we must constantly take on new challenges and relinquish old ones, learn new skills and give up the ones we already have. Each season of our life has its own peculiar taste, its unique sources of joy. If we discover what these are as we move along with the years, we will not end up like Ivan Illich, bemoaning the dreary waste of potentially wonderful existence. Lucio, a 22-year-old whose motorcycle accident left him paralyzed below the waist, remembers. When I became paraplegic, it was like being born again. I, I had to learn from scratch everything I used to know, but in a different way. I had to learn to dress myself, to use my head better. I had to become part of the environment and, and use it without trying to control it. It took commitment, willpower, and patience. As far as the future is concerned, I hope to keep improving, uh, to keep breaking through the limitations of my, my, my handicap. Everybody must have a purpose. After becoming paraplegic, these improvements have become my life goal. One purpose for achieving the flow state is to create happiness even in times of hardship. On this side, you'll learn how using flow can turn stressful experiences into strengthening ones. If everything goes well with you, having flow may not be such a problem. But what if some sudden tragedy strikes, if you lose your health, your money, or the comforts of your home? Conditions of duress put the ability to be happy to a severe test. Yet, it is clear that people who learn to build flow in their lives, people who have an autotelic personality, are able to weather the storms and stresses of life. Now we will talk a little bit about how individuals confronted by great personal tragedies were able to transform the negative situation into a tolerable one and often ended up enjoying their lives more afterwards instead of letting tragedy destroy them. I'm talking here specifically about a group of people studied by one of my colleagues in Europe, Professor Massimini in Milan, who has focused particularly on people who had lost their sight, who became blind, and on another group who have lost the use of their limbs, paraplegics, who had been in accidents. 
And the investigation was focused on finding out whether some of these people, despite these horrible tragedies that happened to them, were able to find a way of living a life that was more or less tolerable. And what he found, to his great surprise, is that many of these people not only found ways to live a tolerable life, but they actually found that their life after the accident, after the tragedy, was in many ways more focused, more purposeful, more meaningful than it had been before. It's as if the tragedy made it clear to them what they had to do in order to live a life that was harmonious, that was autotelic, that is self-rewarding. For instance, one of the subjects that were studied was a young man of 30 years old who had lost his sight when he was 24 years old, and here is how he described what happened to him. First, although I recognize and accept my limitations, I'm going to keep attempting to overcome them. Second, I have decided to always try changing the situations that I don't like. Third, I'm very careful not to repeat any of the mistakes that I make. And finally, I try to be tolerant with myself so I can be tolerant with others. Now, this young man who is now 30 taught himself to play chess and he is going to all kinds of international tournaments. He just had come back from Spain where he played in a championship. He also swims competitively and he had been to a swim meet in Sweden where he competed against other people who had some handicaps. Now, this kind of a focus and consciously living life was something that he lacked before the accident. He just went along doing things that were mildly interesting, mildly enjoyable. But now that he knows that he has to either sink or swim, figuratively speaking, he either lets this horrible event, the loss of sight, either he lets that destroy his life or he has to learn to be in control of his situation. And fortunately, he chose the second course. He chose to make the best of the situation in which he was before. And now he's doing things that he never thought he would be doing. Another respondent that was studied was a woman who became blind at age 12, and now she's 33. And she also enjoys her work. She's a switchboard operator, and she thinks of it as being an orchestra conductor as she's switching the calls back and forth. And she says, when I'm working, I feel like I'm God or something. It's very fulfilling. She feels that she has become more mature as a result of having to take control of her life. Problems no longer bother her like they do her friends who are still sighted. The point is that before she became blind at age 12, she felt that she was at the mercy of a family that was really not very loving, not very caring, and she felt that she would never amount to anything. But then, as a result of the accident, she realized again that it was up to her, that nobody was going to help her, and if she let go at that point, she would be completely helpless, whereas if she learn to help herself, she would be able to pull through. 
Another example was a young man who lost the use of his limbs in a motorcycle accident. He had been an electrician and he was known for acrobatic dancing on Saturday nights in his neighborhood. And once he became paralyzed, of course, this greatest source of enjoyment in his life was lost. But now he feels that he can be of use to other people because he has become a counselor of other accident victims and he helps them to accept and overcome their situations. Like many of the other people who had been interviewed, he has more confidence and joy in his life now than he had before the accident. These examples are just some indications of how often in life an initial hardship or even a tragedy can help us direct our energies, focus them, so that we choose our own goals, so that we develop a discipline to learn the skills to overcome the challenges that are presented by the world around. For instance, in a study of 300 of some of the most successful and eminent people. The two authors, who were a married couple, Goetzel and Goetzel, concluded that practically in most cases, the families of these very successful people had either died early or the parents were alcoholic or they had some other severe problem which affected the early childhood of these future eminent people whether it's someone like Winston Churchill, who became the leader of the Western world during World War II, or uh, Wilma Rudolph, who became an Olympic champion as a runner. There are uh, hundreds of these examples of people whose childhood was full of hardship and yet somehow overcame the situation and became eminent in one form or the other. Now, for instance, the French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre said that the greatest gift that a father can give his son is to die early. And the reason for that is that so many successful artists and politicians are orphaned early in life, and it's because of feeling abandoned and feeling left out that they summon the energy to find a direction in life and overcome the obstacles. Now, this seems to contradict the fact that a family that's supportive and warm is going to produce young people who develop an autotelic personality. But in fact, what seems to be so interesting is that adults who learn to control their lives, adults who develop autotelic personalities, seem to come from the two extremes of childhood experience. They come from families that either are supportive and encouraging and stimulating, or they come from families where the hardships are such that the young person as a child has to fight to develop a future for herself or himself. So it's just the kind of great middle ground that is in some ways more dangerous. That is the kind of families that are neither warm and concerned about their children, nor do they have enough challenge for them to kind of react against that hardship. So 
The point is that one can benefit from hardship too. One can find in the challenges that life presents the inducement, the uh, reason for saying, no, I'm not going to let this happen to me. I'm not going to allow this accident or this situation to overwhelm me. I have to find a way out. And that's where the strength for many people comes that will make it possible for them to have a life which is going to reflect their own goals, which is going to have enough of the discipline and the skills that are necessary for a person to get really involved with what he or she is doing. Flow and the effects of stress. Now, in everyday life, even if we don't have these sort of great problems such as being in an accident that deprives us of our limbs or of having come from a childhood which was very difficult, we still have problems. We are constantly exposed to the slings and arrows of fate. We have illness, economic problems, conflicts with family, conflicts on our job. And the cumulative effect of all of these strains that all of us must face is that we do experience stress. Two psychologists who have developed a scale for measuring stress, their names are Holmes and Ray, had listed all of the events that we can face in our life and tried to find a weight that represents how much stress these events have on us. For instance, the highest form of stress that anyone can face is the loss of a child. If you are a parent and you are in the terrible situation of losing a child, that is the strongest form of stress that is generally reported. One of the lowest forms of stresses that people have to confront is uh, Christmas holidays. On a scale of 100, Christmas holidays score 17. And so, in a sense, five Christmases begin to approach the highest form of stress that we can have. In between Christmas and the loss of a dear one, there is innumerable causes of stress, like getting a parking ticket or having to decide whether to mortgage your home or having problems at work. All of these create stress. And to the extent that you have stress, you will experience psychic entropy in consciousness. In other words, you will have nagging doubts, nagging problems, conflicting desires, worries that you have to allocate attention to. And to the extent that you do that, you can't achieve this harmonious, concentrated feeling which flow produces. So, in other words, stress will begin to conflict with the ability to enjoy your life. Now, there are ways, of course, to minimize the stress because, as I said at an earlier point, stress is not automatic. Stress is our reaction to external strain. And depending on how we react to the external strain, we can feel this uh, entropy in consciousness or we don't. And so, to a large extent, we can control the effect of external stimuli on our experience.
Three ways to minimize stress. There are generally three major ways to make sure that stress is not experienced when external conditions produce strain. In studying people who seem to be able to take stress in stride, we find that one of the first conditions is um, what we have called unselfconscious self-assurance. Unselfconscious is an important factor. As uh, we said before, in flow, you lose consciousness of the self, of the ego. You become involved completely in what you're doing. This um, ability to lose uh, your self-consciousness is very important also in facing stress. That is, when something is happening outside that could be threatening, if you look at it external threat and you become very aware of how the threat could influence you, what terrible things could happen to you if that stressful event were to happen, then you become completely involved with defensive, uh, repressive, worried reactions and probably your effectiveness, your ability to confront these external strain is going to decline. So it's important to be somewhat detached, to forget about always constantly protecting or worrying about yourself. And the best way to become unselfconscious in this sense is, of course, to be somewhat self-assured. That is, it is people who are fairly secure in their skills, in their abilities, who can afford to forget themselves, who can just operate on the problem rather than having to worry about themselves constantly. A good example would be, suppose you're uh, driving in a car and there is a great amount of traffic. As you move in the traffic and there are cars zigging by, passing you by and cutting into the lanes, if you are too worried about what may happen to you of getting into an accident, for instance, it's much more likely that the accident, in fact, is going to happen, or at least that you will end up all frazzled at the end of the ride. Whereas if you just pay attention to the traffic and you are constantly at one with your car, you are driving and thinking of the car and thinking of the flow of traffic rather than yourself, then you're much more likely to flow with the traffic and not to feel the stress that this type of driving may result in. And of course, to be an unselfconscious driver in that sense, you should be somewhat assured of yourself. You should have a fairly good feeling about having good reflexes, being able to anticipate what will happen. So. The self-assurance is partly a result of past experience and partly a state of mind based on realistic skills. And so to achieve this unselfconscious self-assurance, it's good to have skills, it's good to have a positive attitude about one's past. And if you don't, then you perhaps better give up driving in traffic or take the bus. But to the extent that you can maximize these two elements, you can reduce stress. 
The second procedure for making stress less uh, likely to affect you was implicit already in what I said before, and that is uh, that you have to focus attention outside. It's not enough to be unselfconscious and to be assured of yourself unless your consciousness is taking in what is happening around you. That focusing attention on what happens, for instance, on the traffic, on the road, if you're driving, is what allows you to actually reduce objectively the nature of the external stress. For instance, on the job, you're having problem with your boss. You had a conflict, you, you had a run-in with your boss. One solution, which is not the good one, is to Focus attention on yourself and feel sorry for yourself and worry about what the consequences of this argument will be for you. The other one is to focus attention outside, to try to rehearse what went on, what set off this argument, what was the expression of your boss at different moments during the argument, what motivation may he have had that conflicted with what you say that precipitated this flare-up. So, in other words, you are processing information that is relevant to the event that caused the stress. You are completely involved in um, the external reality, and it's because of that that you can then hopefully resolve or avoid having the stress happening again. So then, in addition to unselfconscious self-assurance, you have to focus your psychic energy, your attention, on the situation in as objective a way as possible, which of course would be impossible if you were self-conscious, because then most of what goes in your attention is worrying about yourself. If you have these two conditions, then it's much more likely that you will discover new solutions, which is, of course, the way to reduce stress in the long run. You have to remove the causes, you have to understand the problems that caused it, and to do that, you have to have done the first two steps. You had to have become objective, not self-conscious, you had to focus attention outside, and then you take the whole situation into consideration. You have to think about what is um, causing the stress in the long run and how can you overcome that now. Finally, as I said before, the third way to confront stress in a useful way is by discovering a new solution to the situation that produces stress. The Four Habits of an Autotelic Personality Whether we are confronted with the kind of tragedies that sudden blindness or losing the use of your limbs brings, or whether we are simply confronted with the small-scale aggravation that the wear and tear of stress in everyday life brings, in either case, our ability to react to the stress in a way that instead of disturbing our mind and producing psychic entropy, we can react to it so that we experience flow. The difference will be made in terms of whether we have developed an autotelic personality, an autotelic self that can 
take anything that happens and turn it into a situation which is manageable and perhaps even enjoyable. The autotelic self is one that is differentiated and at the same time integrated. That is a self which is open to experience, which has a variety of interests and skills, and yet one that is harmoniously integrated so that the various goals you have are meaningful and reinforce each other instead of conflicting with each other. To summarize here in terms of what it takes for an autotelic personality to overcome stress, I will mention four major habits that autotelic people are able to rely on. The first habit is the ability to set goals. And over and over in these talks, I mentioned that setting goals, not only overall goals, but small goals as you go along, is one of the most important features for transforming activities that otherwise may be boring into activities that will produce flow. For instance, uh, one of the good examples of a person who would have an autotelic self is someone I would call J.R., who is actually the CEO of one of the largest financial conglomerates in this country. He's one of these persons whom, when you see him interact uh, in any situations, whether with uh, strangers or colleagues, or whether he's traveling on a plane or, or stopping in Hong Kong in a hotel or, or whatever, He's always knows what he wants to do in the situation. His goals are constantly popping up and framing his attention, giving him something to accomplish. Whether it's new people or people he knows, whether it's new situations or a, a new city, he will know what he wants to accomplish there and with this particular people. But I don't want to give the impression that when I say that he always knows what to do with, with a new person he meets, it's not that he's trying to use everyone. He's trying to understand them. That's the thing that makes him really different from lower-level manipulating person. He's not trying to manipulate, to exploit, or to seduce the people he meets. He just wants to understand what they are about and how they fit within the program of his uh, purpose. And if they are interesting people, if they are people with their own intentions, then he will respect that difference and try to understand them anyway, even if it's not something that fits within his plans. But he wants to know who is doing what, why, and for what purpose. So he's, in order to be able to pursue these goals that he sets, um, JR, like um, other individuals who have this autotelic personality, they know how to pay attention. And that's the second step of an autotelic personality. Their attention is under their own controls. So, for instance, as they move through the day, they notice everything. They are processing information in a fresh way. They don't use stereotypes. They don't assume that they know what is happening around them. They don't assume that they know the room in which they are, the people they're talking to, but they are freshly noticing their environments, um, the things they interact with, and not from a selfish point of view again. It's not that they are trying to scope out 
their environment so that they can use it. They will use the parts of it that fit into their plants, but they are really paying attention because they are interested in what happens around them. Because you know what you want to accomplish and you're paying attention, then the third characteristic of uh, a person like JR is that you become immersed in the activity, that you are not, even though you are objective and to a certain extent detached, you are part of it because you really do notice what happens, and therefore you can react appropriately to what happens. So the outcome of this, of course, is that you learn. You are always learning because you are paying attention and you are relating what you learn to your goals. So you can evaluate what is happening, you can make judgments about it, and you become a knowledgeable participant in everything you do. So you're not left out, you're not an observer, you're not a fellow traveler, you're not a tourist, you are there, part of whatever you do. And this is typical of a person like J.R. If you follow these three steps, namely, you are always setting goals, you are always paying attention, you become immersed in whatever you do, the outcome is that you learn to enjoy whatever you are doing, and that produces a sense of high energy, liveliness, which essentially, in a case, for instance, like J.R., uh, translates itself into the charisma of leadership. This uh, man who is always enjoying whatever he does because he pays attention, because he learns what happens there and he can evaluate everything in terms of his goals, becomes a powerful leader in the eyes of those he works with. But even if you don't want to become a financial leader like JR, you can adopt these habits of uh, goal setting, uh, paying attention, becoming immersed in what you do so that you end up enjoying it because that is the best strategy for overcoming the stresses of life, whether they are severe or whether they are the ordinary aggravations that all of us must face in our daily existence. A famous composer explains why he composes. One doesn't do it for the money. One does it for, perhaps, the satisfaction it gives. I think the great composers, all the great artists, work for themselves, period. They don't care about anybody else. They primarily satisfy themselves. If you get any fame out of it, it's when you're dead and buried. So what's the good of it? This is what I tell my students. Don't expect to make money. Don't expect fame or a pat on the back. Don't expect a darn thing. Do it because you love it. Perhaps one of the most well-known arenas for producing flow is in the realm of creativity. On this side, you'll learn how it is possible for anyone to develop flow experiences in a creative context. Albert Michelson was the first American to win a Nobel Prize in science. He had spent his entire adult life constructing more and more precise ways of measuring the speed of light. 
It seems like something that would be rather boring to do for one's entire career, but he was one of the most ingenious scientists and experimentalists, and when he was asked in his old age why he had spent all his life building this apparatus for measuring the speed of light, he answered, it was so much fun. Now, Almost every artist who discovers something new, every scientist who pushes knowledge beyond the barriers of the known, enjoy tremendously what they are doing. Anyone who has broken new ground in a field describes the profound joy that he or she derives from the simple act of working. At the same time, talented young people who do not enjoy using their talent will not develop their abilities to their fullest. For you too, if you enjoy what you do, you may not become an Einstein or a Picasso, but it will certainly help make you feel as if you were one of them. Creativity and enjoyment share much in common. Their psychological roots are similar. Both are attempts to avoid psychic entropy or the frustrations and boredom of everyday life. Their consequences are also similar. Creativity and enjoyment both result in a more complex consciousness, although only creativity leads to more complex cultural forms. Not surprisingly, the act of creation, despite its many hardships, is generally described as one of the most profoundly enjoyable experiences available to us. It seems that evolution has built into our nervous system a preference for complexity. Just as we experience pleasure when we do things that are necessary for survival, as we do when we eat and have sex, so we experience enjoyment when we do something that stretches our skills in new directions, when we recognize and master new challenges. The connection between flow and creativity was one that I discovered at the very beginning of my career as a research scientist back in the early 60s. And it was during a study of artists who were working in their studios, painting or doing sculptures. And the most important thing I realized in observing and filming their work was how completely immersed they became in their work and how they could forget fatigue and hunger and sleep if the work they were doing involved them to the point that they were completely immersed in the challenges, the opportunities that the work presented them with. So that is how I discovered flow actually, is by watching artists. And after that experience, I realized how practically every creative activity produces flow. Every scientist or every inventor, every artist who is creative will describe his work, his life, as being constantly full of these stretches of flow that come from the immersion in what they are doing best. But, of course, what is interesting is that everyday life of people who are not artists, not scientists, can 
also become enjoyable the moment that you approach it in this creative way that is open to novelties, ready to get excited, interested in the kind of things you're doing, whether you are a salesperson or a writer, an editor or engineer who is manufacturing, whatever the activity you do, it can be done more creatively by putting aside occasionally your assumptions, your prejudices, your preconceived notions, and get immersed in this activity with the excitement and curiosity of a child trying to understand from scratch, trying to reconsider, re-understand, reinvent what you are doing. Creativity stems from discovering problems. And that's how you will be able to see new opportunities, new possibilities, and be able to live and work creatively. Because one of the things we learn about creativity is that the essence of creativity is not so much the solution of problems that are already there, that are already envisioned, but it's the discovery of new problems. Almost all of the great creative breakthroughs and also the small little creative breakthroughs in life are more the result of having realized that there is a new way of thinking, there is a new way of conceptualizing the problem, rather than being confronted with a problem and then saying, okay, how can I solve this? That can be creative too. Problem solving can be done creatively. But the most interesting, the most exciting creative activities come not from solving problems, but from discovering problems, from formulating new problems. And that is typically the result of someone who approaches his life in terms of flow, somebody who is open to new ideas, envisioning new opportunities, and who has this self-assured, unselfconscious involvement, who, someone who is paying attention, who gets involved with whatever he or she is doing, will have a chance to essentially reinvent his life. Every human being has this creative urge as a birthright. It can be squelched and corrupted, but it cannot be completely extinguished. All flow experiences are potentially creative because they involve facing up to new challenges and mastering them with one's skills. The world may not always see the results of flow as creative, but the person who has the experience knows that he or she has accomplished something new, something difficult, something perhaps beautiful and certainly valuable for oneself. One of the most often mentioned features of flow is the feeling of discovery, the excitement of finding out something new about oneself or about the many opportunities for action that the environment offers. It is because we enjoy discovery and self-discovery that flow is such an important aspect of evolution. For instance, a rock climber describes flow in his sport. The mystique of rock climbing is climbing. You get to the top of a rock, glad it's over, but really, wish it would go on forever. The justification of climbing is climbing, like the justification of poetry is writing. You don't conquer anything except things in yourself. On a more sober note, a surgeon describes why operating is so enjoyable. 
The personal rewards are greatest in challenging cases when you extend the self and think more. And here is what a chess master says. It's exhilarating, like I'm succeeding at putting a very hard puzzle together. In each of these very different activities, joy comes from going beyond what one has already achieved, from mastering new skills and new knowledge. How flow leads to creativity. There's perhaps no better way to show the link between creativity and enjoyment than talking again about Linus Pauling, who won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for his creative combination of quantum mechanics and chemistry. And then he won the Nobel Prize later in peace for his efforts to bring atomic weapons under some sort of social control. Well, Pauling, when asked about what kind of advice he would give to young people who were entering the field of scientific research, he answered, I say, think about what you like best to do. What is it that you enjoy doing? And then find out whether there is a possibility that you can earn your living by doing that. This is as good a way to work toward the goal of leading a good life as there is and the goal of leading a happy life. The reason that flow naturally leads to creativity is that you can't remain in this balanced state of challenges and skills for long. Suppose that you start, let's say, learning to play tennis. At first, it's quite enjoyable simply to hit the ball with the racket. You're not even concerned of sending it across the net. You just want to hit it fair and square in the middle. And that may be enjoyable, but only for perhaps a few minutes, a few hours. After that, you have developed the skill, and now just hitting the ball becomes boring. You know how to do it, so you need new challenge for enjoying yourself again. So the new challenge maybe again is just to bat the ball across the net without hitting the net. And that challenge may keep you into an enjoyable flow state for a few minutes or perhaps even a few hours. but. After that, just batting the ball across the net is no longer enough of a challenge. You have to up the challenges again. So you're looking for a new challenge. While in tennis, it's clear the challenge would be to make sure that when you serve, the ball ends up in the right part of the opponent's court, between the lines where it should be. So that could be a challenge. What I'm trying to say is that as you move into an activity, as you explore the potential of the activity, you will become bored after a while unless you find new challenges. Once the new challenges are in place, when you start realizing what the new challenges can be, then the activity will become enjoyable again for a while, but not for long unless you up the challenges again. Creating challenges is innate. There is nothing really very hard about understanding how this desire to make things more complex, to develop new skills, to take on new challenges is. This is not something that only the top creative people have or that is something we have to learn. We have this desire to make things more complex and enjoy new challenges naturally. This is a completely natural part of our heritage. 
In fact, not only children have it, and they have it more clearly than we do, but even you find it in animals. For instance, I learned a lot from our dogs that we have had over the years. The first dog we had was a hunting dog by the name of Hussar. And whenever I took him to the park to exercise, he spontaneously developed this game of running around me in circles and waiting for me to lounge and try to catch him and at least touch him. And that was a simple enough game, but he very soon learned how to make it more complex. In other words, if one morning I would be sleepy and tired and not jump very far or lunge very far, he would run the circles very narrowly around me, very small circles, so that I had a chance to touch him even if I didn't try very hard. However, if the next morning I felt much more uh, peppy and ambitious, then he would run circles that were much wider around, so that even though I launched hard, I still had a hard time touching him. In other words, he had spontaneously understood that for us to have fun, we had to match the challenges with the skills. So he did not simply learn to run the same circle around, but adapted himself to this situation and made the interaction for both of us more enjoyable. We found the same thing with our new dog, a cocker spaniel, who is called Cedric. And he has a built-in instinct for retrieving birds. That's what he was bred for. His genes tell him to go chase birds. But in the city that we live in, birds of the kind that he was bred to retrieve are not very frequent. So what he has learned is to change his habits that were bred into him. And he's applying his skills to retrieving tennis balls. And he's fantastic at catching balls. He loves to find them even if they fall into deep bushes or ravines. And he becomes incredibly proud when he finds one. And his whole demeanor changes. He walks proudly, holding the ball he has found up in the air, showing everybody what a clever dog he is. And when we are at home, when the weather is too cold to find tennis balls in their natural habitat in the park, then we use the tennis balls, we throw them down the hallway, we have a long hallway, and he will go after them, and then after about two times that we throw the ball, the third time, he already is introducing changes and variations in the activity. He will, instead of bringing it back through the hallway, he will go through some other rooms to make the activity more enjoyable, more exciting, more unpredictable. And he will vary the sequence in ways that the simple act of going back and forth through the hallway that would become routine and boring becomes more enjoyable. So the same kind of instinct for making things more enjoyable, more complex, more creative, is something that we all have, animals, children. And it's only as the children grow up that they learn to in a sense, squelch the notion that you should be discovering, you should be experiencing novelty, you should be introducing creative variation in life that is enjoyable. We teach our children to sit in class the same way, to process information in a routine assembly line way, and instead of discovering things and 
learning creatively, we package and we kind of force feed the information to children. And at that point, creativity becomes compromised. The habits of living creatively, of thinking creatively, becomes transformed into routine. There is an interesting description of the life of Paolo Uccello, who was one of the great Renaissance painters, one of the inventors of perspective in painting, who lived in um, the 15th century. And the biographer Vasari, who described how he operated, how he worked, describes how Paolo Uccello, this painter, used to spend all night walking up and down in his garret muttering to himself, che bella cosa è questa perspectiva, what a beautiful thing perspective is. He had just discovered a way of representing three dimensions in two so that you preserve the illusion of three dimensions. Now, uh, Uccello's wife kept calling him back to bed saying, forget perspective, let's go to sleep. But uh, Uccello was so immersed in the possibility of actually breaking through in this um, representation of three dimensions so that you see the perspective of space receding, that sleep had no attraction for him. The same kind of immersion is familiar to anyone who has been involved in creative activities. So what you are doing is you, your attention becomes um, sucked in this developing dynamic uh, representation that you have created. We are talking about modern artists living now, not the Renaissance artists like Uccello walking up and down and saying what a beautiful thing perspective is, but the process is the same. That is, you are paying attention, you are getting involved, with something that's happening, something that hasn't happened before, and you are part of it. You are not only creating it, but you are actually responding to this potential, this possibility that's developing on the canvas. And many great writers, many great scientists say that, uh, musicians, composers say that they are not really doing the work themselves, that the pen is doing it. They're holding a pen and the pen is writing. What they mean really by that is that they get so involved, they're paying so much attention to what comes out of the pen that they don't consciously separate themselves from the act of writing. They are taken up by it, and of course they are themselves who are writing, but they are no longer conscious of themselves. They are no longer conscious of the effort that went into it, what's inside them is pouring out through the pen, through the hand that holds the pen. And then they are reading what they are writing and they are responding to what they are writing. And this kind of total immersion in the activity is typical of creative activities and it's the same thing as flow. One um, physicist that uh, we interviewed who is very creative for instance, says that there's only one pen he can write with, and when that pen runs out of ink, he runs out of ideas. He has to stop, refill the pen, and then start writing again. He has achieved such a unity with 
this particular pen and with the ideas that come tumbling out of his mind on the page and he is reflecting those ideas that come out and there is like a circuit established between the mind the pen the paper and then back to the mind and this this feedback loop this circle that gets established is what carries the creative activity forward which produces flow in the creative person How to avoid getting stuck. Of course, not all of the life of a creative artist is full of joy and sunshine. In fact, very often artists feel frustrated, uh, feel depressed. They sometimes have a block that keeps them from writing or painting again. And those um, obstacles that dam up the creative flow of energy are things that sooner or later almost every creative person experiences and probably we experience in our lives too. The only sure way to overcome them is to develop the habits that all successful people, all creative people have. They are habits of discipline which force our attention into routines that bypass the big problems, the big conflicts, the big depression that otherwise would capture our energy. So, again, the solution is the same as with all other flow experiences. Develop goals that are manageable. Develop ways of getting started with our work that bypass the great existential dread that waits for us if we don't find ways of eluding it. For instance, almost all great riders have habits that routines that will get them started riding and forgetting the kind of big problems that would stand in their way. For instance, the French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau used to spend 20 minutes each morning going out in his courtyard sitting down under the sun, taking off the wig he wore on his head, and waiting for 20 minutes until his brain was addled by the heat. And then he would put his wig back in place and go back to his study and start writing. That's one way of doing it. The philosopher Immanuel Kant used to sit in his study looking out to a church spire that uh, was a block or two down from his home. And he would uh, uh, wait until the sun shining off the golden globe on top of the church spire kind of um, almost hypnotized him. When his mind was essentially cleared of all thoughts by this hypnotic trance, he would start writing his deep philosophical ideas. These are two examples of ways in which people do it. Others spend the first 10 minutes uh, booting up their computer, playing around with their computer, or sharpening their pencils, if that's what they work with. And as they do these routine activities, they can essentially force their mind into a kind of um, channel or tunnel that will help the concentration once you start working. Otherwise, you may be too distracted by big problems, too distracted by everyday problems, 
even uh, surgeons before an operation, a difficult operation, they will say that they put themselves on automatic pilot by dressing the same old clothes, having the same kind of breakfast as they always do, driving to work by the same pattern of turns on the street. And then when they get into the hospital, they will change their clothes again, wash their hands, put on scrubs. They perform a ritual that will slowly disengage their mind from the everyday problems and focus it on the task at hand. For the same reason, athletes, baseball players will have routines of dressing or routines of acting. They will have even little um, trinkets that they hang from a chain or from their neck that touching those will allow them to recapture a certain way of uh, thinking or acting that worked for them in the past. The important thing is not to follow any one recipe. I mean, there are hundreds of different ways of doing it. The important thing is to find out what works for you. How can you, with the most ease, achieve the concentration, the involvement with the particular challenges that you are involved with, whether that challenge is coming home from work to get in tune with your spouse, with your friends, with your children. There must be a way that you can find that tuning in, that getting on the same wavelength without too much problems. If we don't find a way, we will just bring all the problems of the workplace with us and it will be a conflicting situation. We'll be thinking about other things from the other people in the home, and yet we have to find a way of establishing contact if we want to enjoy the conversation, if we want to enjoy the interaction with them. And the same thing when we go to work in the morning. We have to be able to cut out the distractions, the problems, the worries that we have so that we can focus in on the job at work. And whether it's morning or, or afternoon or evening, each of us has to find the most efficient way of conserving energy and focusing energy. And that may require developing rituals, routines like the basketball players, like the baseball players, like the surgeons, like Kant, like Rousseau. All of us have this task of learning to beam our energy with the greatest focus so that we can achieve our task and enjoy it in the process. Rayed, a 33-year-old Egyptian who sleeps in the parks of Milan, eats in charity kitchens, and occasionally washes dishes for restaurants when he needs the cash, tells his story. After the war of 1967, I decided to leave Egypt and start hitchhiking toward Europe. Ever since, I have been living with my mind concentrated within myself. It has not been just a trip. It has been a search for identity. Every man has something to discover within himself. The people in my town were sure I was crazy when I decided to start walking to Europe. The best thing in life is to know oneself. I slept in ditches near the road in thunderstorms. I was involved in accidents. I've seen friends die next to me. 
but my concentration has never flagged. It has been an adventure that so far has lasted 20 years, but it will keep going on for the rest of my life. Through these experiences I have come to see that the world is not worth much. The only thing that counts for me now, first and last, is God. The main thing is that we were born to praise the Lord. If I am to live 20 more years, I will try to live enjoying each moment, instead of killing myself to get more. I set out on this journey like a baby bird hatching from its egg. Ever since, I've been walking in freedom. Perhaps the ultimate challenge is living a meaningful life. Here you'll learn how using flow can help to make this task a bit easier. Enjoying the separate elements of life, like work, play, relationships and solitude, will go a long way towards making your life more full and happy. But most people need to find a unifying theme that relates the various facets of experience into a meaningful whole. Religions and value systems often perform this function. One may think of these systems of belief as the rules of an all-encompassing game, the game of life. We should talk now about how these life themes are created these themes that give purpose and meaning to the whole of existence, and how they can bring flow into a person's entire existence. First of all, to have a life theme means that one has a purpose, has an overarching goal that will lead and order and create priorities in all of our actions. In addition to this purpose, we need resolve. We need to have the habits, the discipline that will allow us to move day by day, moment by moment towards the realization of these goals. When we have a purpose and we have developed the skills to pursue them, then the next task is to make sure that all of the actions that we do during our life are not going to conflict with these goals that we have established. So the third step in achieving a life that is harmonious and unified is to connect everything we do and to learn to make sure that the various things we do during life are not going to conflict with the overarching goals that we have established. When these three elements are in place, namely an overarching goal, a set of skills or habits to achieve them, and when we have established a connection between every action we do and these purposes, then we probably have developed a life theme. And once we have a life theme, a scenario, a script that gives a purpose to what we do, then we are set for experiencing everything we do in life as meaningful and enjoyable. The two kinds of life themes. Let me talk more in detail about what it means to have a life theme. There are basically two kinds of life themes. One of them is what we could call a presented life theme. 
This is the script or scenario for our life that we essentially inherit from the culture in which we live. We just know, for instance, in our culture that one should desire to have a good job, a nice family, at least two new cars in the garage, having a home in a good neighborhood. These elements of a life theme, that is, these props of a life, are presented because we really don't make any decision in having them. We don't have to choose them. They are present in the warp and woof of our culture. They are part of the script that we are presented with as we are born in this culture. Now, trying to achieve these goals gives us a theme for our life, but a theme which is okay only as long as everything else goes well. As long as we have no illness, no economic downturn, no problems in the family. But once the culture fails to provide the support that we are expecting and we think we are entitled to, then this kind of presented life theme begins to have less and less of a meaning. And people begin to get disoriented. They feel in the middle of their lives as they struggled for 30, 35, 40 years to achieve these goals, there's very often a sense of, well, is this all there is to it? Is there anything more in life that I should be achieving? These goals do not fulfill the person's unique potentialities. They are kind of like a generic script, a generic set of goals, a generic theme, which can be satisfying, but generally, turns out to leave a person dissatisfied and unfulfilled in the middle of one's life. On the other hand, there are other types of life themes. These are the ones I would call discovered life themes. These themes evolve as a person learns to find a goal that makes sense given his or her unique temperament and unique situation. In other words, these are goals that one develops as one pays attention to what feels good, what kind of skills one has. We all are born with different skills. I mean, some of us are much more in tune with sounds, so we can discriminate, differentiate sounds better than others. We have a better ear. We have a more tuneful voice. A person like that, if he or she is paying attention to this difference that this gift that he or she was given can develop a life team which is much more unique and more responsive to what is the gift that this person had that others don't have. Other individuals are born with greater sensitivity to light, to color, and they may go in the direction of becoming visual artists or designers or architects or decorators. Some of us are born with a sensitivity to people or with a greater moral sense. Some children have a sense of what's fair and unfair and they're concerned about it. We don't know why. It's probably a neurological difference that makes them sensitive to fairness and unfairness. Now, out of that, you can develop a life theme that is more in tune with who you are with the particular gifts that you were given to. At the same time, Discovered Life Team is in tune with the environment, with the event that are happening, with the kind of people, the kind of situations that you have. 
Let me give a few examples. One person that is part of the study I have been doing for the past 30 years is a person I will call Alex, who was born to a very poor family of immigrants at the beginning of this century. His parents were illiterate, they didn't know anything about the culture in which they were living, except that they were very grateful to be able to be in America instead of Russia, where they had been oppressed. And so they looked with great admiration and great trust to this country that promised equality and well-being to immigrants. Well, Alex was seven years old when he drove a bicycle down the street. This bicycle was given to him by his parents, and it represented years of saving, scraping, and saving from food and clothes so that Alex could have a bicycle. And he was very proud and very happy riding it down the street when suddenly he was struck by a car that had jumped a traffic sign and had hit him. And he fell down, he was badly bruised, and the bike was completely destroyed. Now, out of the car stepped a doctor who owned the car, and this doctor convinced Alex and later his family that they should not report the accident because it would be too time-consuming and bureaucratic, whereas the doctor himself would take care of Alex and would bring him into a hospital and make sure that everything was taken care of and that then he would buy him a new bike. So the parents who were very impressed and intimidated by a professional, a doctor, while they were poor uh, illiterates, agreed to this arrangement. And Alex was taken to the hospital, but the doctor actually did not treat him for free, and the hospital presented a, a large bill to Alex's parents. Neither did this doctor buy a new bike to Alex. So he ended up coming out of the hospital poorer than he went in, and the family was very depressed and disillusioned. Now... At this point, Alex could have decided that he was unlucky, that everybody else were mean, and that life was a set of confrontations where you sometimes you lose, sometimes you win. But instead of that, what Alex did was, over the years, to begin thinking about what happened to him and realize that the event, this unfortunate event that he experienced, was part of a much larger picture. It was part of a situation in which ignorant people, illiterate people who did not have the opportunity to be educated were being exploited, whether purposefully or not, but inevitably they were being exploited by a system where people with greater resources, greater education could operate without compunction, without being afraid of being called to task by those who had no education, to know better, to defend their interests. So, to make a long story short, Alex ended up becoming a lawyer, becoming a professor of law, and he ended up as a member of President Truman's cabinet, and he was responsible for enacting a whole set of legislations that would defend the rights of minorities, the rights of poor people, and in doing so, he marshaled all his energies, all his attention under the umbrella of this single purpose of helping those who could not help themselves. 
And his life team became essentially a channel where all his energies, all his goals were subordinated to the wider social goal of helping other people. A somewhat similar example is that of Stephen, who was a young boy when his mother died of cancer. And the young boy felt increasing hatred for these mysterious forces that were rubbing the health of his mother and making her feel pain. And eventually his mother was buried. Stephen remembers that as a young boy of eight, he stood by the grave and he swore to himself that eventually he would defeat this illness that had caused his mother's suffering and death. Very early, Stephen began to work as a medical researcher, as a chemist first, and then a medical researcher, and he has become now one of the most famous oncologists or cancer researchers in this country. These examples of Alex and Stephen show how very often a discovered life team is a result of a tragedy or a hardship. And we have talked about this before, that very often it is hardships, it is tragedies that create the reason for us to get out of the normal routine of the presented goals of having a good job, nice family, two cars, etc. It gives us a reason for getting dissatisfied with the ordinary aspirations the ordinary goals that we share with other members of society. And it is these external pressures, tragedies, that force us to react and force us to ask ourselves, now, what is it that I need to do in this world? What is it that I have to accomplish? And that external impetus, that external force, often is enough to provide a lifelong goal, a set of priorities under which everything else will fall and will give you a set of challenges that it takes a whole life to learn to react to. Now, both Alex and Stephen, even though they suffered these early tragedies and problems, were able to have an entire life which provided flow to them because they knew what they had to do, moment by moment, as well as over the whole arch of their lives, they were purposefully involved with a set of challenges that they felt were meaningful and were worth investing attention in, investing energy in. So they essentially created out of their early problems an overarching system of actions, almost like a global game that gave them a purpose, a reason to work and a set of challenges that they could match. How they did it. Where do the solution to these discovered life themes come from? How did Stephen and Alex realize what they could do given the fact that they were presented in a sense with the problem, but then they had to discover a solution to them? Well, in both cases, as in most cases of discovered life teams, the solution was pieced together from examples, from models of people who were inspirational in their lives, and very often from books, reading in books about people who overcome problems, who found solutions to their problems. 
makes you feel that, hey, you know, it's possible. I'm not alone. I'm not the only one with this type of problems. There have been other people confronted by similar or worse problems. They have been able to overcome it, so I will be able to overcome it. Another person who, for instance, used books uh, to recreate himself and to develop a discovered life team is Malcolm X. As a young boy, he was a juvenile delinquent in the ghetto. He ran drugs, he was a pimp, he got into all kinds of scrapes, he was arrested several times, he hurt people, he was hurt personally, but he has a completely, he had a completely entropic existence, that is, Everything he did was in conflict with others or with conflict within himself. And it was in jail, actually, that Malcolm X started reading books and he became aware of ways of creating harmony in life by developing a larger purpose. So that when he was released from jail, he had a team, he had a purpose, he had a priority, which was that of understanding the preachings of Islam and how to apply it to modern day life and how to organize the Afro-American political forces towards the goal. So in his case, um, the ability to develop a life team came fairly late in life. But it's always possible to use the resources of the culture, the examples, the models, the books. And of course, to use the meaning systems that culture has developed. These meaning systems include religion, philosophy, art, all of which try to give us a sense of how to organize life in a harmonious way towards a set of goals that can enrich our lives and give purpose to it so that we can lose ourselves in these skillful activity that's required to achieve these high goals, but which allow us to experience flow along the way. The problem with already packaged meaning systems like religions and philosophies is that it is easy to fall into a presented mode of accepting them. In other words, they can become inauthentic if we don't really put a lot of work into rediscovering the truths that are in these already existing meaning systems. It's easy to embrace a religion out of despair. It is easy to accept a philosophy because it seems fashionable or it seems like a learned thing to do. But if we do that without reflecting and without matching the religious and philosophical techniques or theories to our real nature and to our real situation, then instead of discovering a life theme, we will simply accept another presented life theme. The most ambitious life theme is one that is based on the goal of becoming part of the most powerful energy in the universe. For a religious person, this is God. In fact, in all religions, the highest goal is somehow to find a way of uniting oneself with the force that rules the cosmos, that rules the universe. In our own time, this goal may be expressed as becoming a conscious, leading part in the process of evolution. Becoming a leading part in the process of evolution 
means to help make the future more harmonious and more enjoyable for oneself and for as many other people as possible. To help to make the planet less polluted, to make it more fruitful, to make it more beautiful, to help along all forms of life as well as humanity and oneself. This goal, if we really believe in it, if it makes sense to us, can give the most um, ambitious but most exciting, most exhilarating purpose to everything we do in life. Developing your discovered life theme. So how can you develop a discovered life theme if you want to? Well, you should probably by now know what in your life you think uh, is most precious to you. What in your life is most disturbing? Are there any single things that, if you could resolve them, would give you a sense of accomplishment above everything else? Would it be to help a certain person? Would it be to develop some potential that you think you have but you have never developed? Is it that you are worried about the state of the world in the future, either in terms of what's happening to us as society or what is happening to the globe, to the planet? You should find out what is it in your life that is most precious, that is most important. We find, for instance, when interviewing um, professionals, businessmen, executives in their 50s who have had a burnout, whose life suddenly lost meaning, if you ask them what do they think that resulted in their present despair or depression, if you ask them what caused their burnout, they will tell you almost unanimously that the most important reason is that they never developed priorities in their lives. They never asked themselves what counted most, what was most important. Or if they asked themselves that, they didn't take themselves seriously. They didn't act on their perception of what mattered the most. Instead, they went along with whatever forces pushed them or pulled them at this point. They responded to other people. They used whatever demands or whatever emergencies arose as an excuse to divert their psychic energy into these immediate responses, instead of really following up on what was most precious, most important, most salient in their own life, in their own experience. There is no one team that will fit all. There is not even one team that may fit more than one or two persons at a time. You have to decide what you would like to feel at the end of your life that you have accomplished, and you will be proud of, that you would feel that it was worth living for. Whatever that is, whether it's accomplishing a certain skill or a certain relationship or a certain well-being or a certain action that will make others feel better or live better, whatever that is, that will give you the reference point, the compass point that would help you to organize your life, to establish priorities, and that could lead you into the future. For some of us, it may be that we indeed have to postpone and compromise for a while. 
we can't do what we wanted to do. We can't go off into the South Seas and become a marine biologist uh, because we don't have the resources. We have other obligations, responsibilities. But if we have to compromise, if we have to postpone, at least we should keep this leading goal, this priority that we know is the most important thing in our life. We should keep that alive. We should keep it for when the next opportunity arises and then take it. In one uh, hospital in the Netherlands, a colleague of mine, Dr. Martin de Vries, has used our techniques to measure the quality of experience to find out how patients who have been recovered for years and sometimes dozens of years in these uh, mental hospitals, how they can be taken and reintegrated into normal life without creating a burden on the community and enhancing the life of the former patients. One example, for instance, was a woman who had been in the hospital for over 15 years who was diagnosed as a chronic schizophrenic and who essentially lived a vegetative life in the hospital. She did not do anything interesting. Nobody paid attention to her. She was essentially just uh, like a piece of furniture there. Martin de Vries gave her the pager to evaluate the quality of experience. And after two weeks, noticed that there were only two times in two weeks that this woman approached anything similar to flow, where she felt alert, awake, concentrated, she felt better about herself. And these were times she had been cutting her fingernails. Now, it occurred to the therapist that if this woman was trained as a manicurist, she may have more often this feeling of positive experience. So they trained her. She became so involved in, in uh, cutting and caring for the fingernails of the people in the hospital that she completely changed from um, essentially a vegetable into an active person. She didn't talk much, she didn't laugh a lot, but she was focused, she was involved, interested in what she was doing. So after a while, she was released in the community and they had a social worker visiting her every twice a day at first and then every day, then twice a week. And now this woman, after essentially having been sentenced for a life of complete uh, uselessness in a hospital, is an active participant in the community. She's cutting the nails of people. She has a shingle on her door. We don't know why this is enjoyable to her. We may never find out. But the point is that her life has changed. And many of the lives of people who are now depressed, who are chronically unhappy with their lives, could change if instead of taking the situation as something for granted, something that is there and you can't help, take the control over your life and maybe with the help of others, if not by yourself, change it around by discovering what is enjoyable, what you like to do in life, and try to develop the habits to pursue those goals in a way that more and more of your life becomes imbued with flow. Having a life theme means to create a personal fate, an overall goal for one's existence. 
It means that you have an ultimate purpose and you are free to pursue it regardless of pressures and worries. When you have chosen a goal and decided on a path to reach it, everything you do will have a meaning. Whether you succeed or not, you will know that you are part of evolving complexity. The energy of your consciousness will be blended with the creative striving for order in the whole universe. When the whole of life is transformed into a single flow experience, the dissatisfaction that casts a shadow on so many of our lives will become just a distant memory. A mountain climber discusses his deep flow experience. There's no place that more draws the best from human beings than a mountaineering situation. Nobody hassles you to put your, your mind and body under tremendous stress to get to the top. Your comrades are there. But you all feel the same way anyway. You're all in it together. It's exhilarating to come closer and closer to self-discipline. You make your body go and everything hurts. Then you look back in awe of the self. And what you've done, it just blows your mind. If you win these battles enough, that battle against yourself, at least for a moment, it becomes easier to win the battles in the world. Sometimes I think it's my only survival in the space age. Without that, I wouldn't last a week out here. As you start learning about flow, you probably have many questions that come to your mind about how to make this optimal experience more a part of your life. As I travel around the country, people keep asking questions that I haven't answered in my own work, but which are important for each individual to know so that they can apply the general principles of flow to their own situation. Let us review some of these questions and hopefully my answers to them will help you answer the doubts that you have or the concerns that you have in your own mind. Is there an automatic way for people to get into flow? Of course, if you do have activities that you usually do that provide this experience, then often just focusing on that activity will help. For instance, if you like to play chess, you bring out the board and set up the pieces. And if you have an opponent to play against, or you can play against a problem that you take from a book, you can get involved immediately because the set itself, the pieces will get you to focus in on what you're doing. If you have a routine of exercises, you start doing the exercises, you go through them, and eventually, the more you focus, the more you are aware of what the challenges are and you're beginning to respond to those challenges with your skills, sooner or later you will get involved and you will enter flow. In other words, it's important to have some ready-made routines, some activities that you like to do, cooking your favorite meal or watching your favorite show or taking a good book or getting to talk to a good friend. Any of these activities, if you have practiced them, if they have become part of your repertoires of activities, will get you into the flow state automatically. 
If you don't have already prepared routines, then it's much more difficult. And that's why it's good to develop that discipline. But if you find yourself in a new situation where you can't um, easily move into the flow state, then it's good to have certain mental habits, certain mental disciplines that can get you there even without external props. So if you learn some meditative technique or some simple steps towards self-hypnosis, it doesn't matter what it is, as long as it helps you to focus the mind and avoid the distractions, avoid the bombardment of external stimuli which interferes with flow. Once you have achieved that state, then you can focus on whatever is at hand, um, either doing your job, driving the car, or watching other people pass by and visualize, uh, daydream in your mind. Any of these can get you into the state once you have uh, prepared yourself to avoid the distractions and you're in a position of focusing. Can you have flow all the time? Or do you need some time to relax, some time to just vegetate, to read trashy novels, or to just be by yourself without anything to do? Of course, it's true that we cannot be in flow all the time. We cannot sustain that high level of use of skills, that involvement with challenges all the time. And we shouldn't feel, therefore, ashamed if part of our life is devoted to simply relaxing. The problem becomes when we um, take relaxation as being the goal of our free time, when that's the only thing that we seek when we are free. Because we find that when people try relaxing, for the first hour maybe it works, but then you become tense again. Even, for instance, if you watch TV for a few hours, the first hour you begin relaxing and then you begin to be tense again. Whereas if you are involved in some activity like gardening, like carpentry, or even reading a book that challenges you, then the relaxation continues, even though you're not trying to relax. You are actively involved, but because it is an um, activity you choose and you're balancing your skills with the challenges, you don't get stressed out by that involvement. In fact, you become more relaxed. So the paradox is that Trying to relax too much makes you more tense eventually, whereas an involvement with something that is purposeful, that um, uses your skills, ends up by relaxing you more. So you need time to just plain relax, but if you misunderstand how relaxation comes about, you may be missing the boat by trying to do too much of it. So it's uh, better to spend the minimum necessary time and pure relaxation, and spend the rest in activities that allow you to grow as a person, that make you more complex, and make the activity itself more enjoyable. Can you have too much flow? Can flow become addictive? Well, it's true that one of the secrets of using flow is, first of all, to find it in activities which are constructive. You can have flow in activities which are destructive. For instance, 
One of our first studies was a study of juvenile delinquents, of young people who came from good families. These were all teenagers from affluent suburbs. They didn't have to steal, they didn't have to break into cars to vandalize. They did it because they were bored. They could find nothing more enjoyable in their environment except breaking the law or, or uh, for instance, one of them, he was asked why he broke into a house. To, he said, well, if you could show me how to do something that was as enjoyable as walking into a house without waking up the owners and stealing their jewelry, then I would do that. I can't think of anything that gives as much uh, enjoyment to me. And it's true that if a person has no skills, then people will find flow wherever they can find it. They will find it in destruction, in violence. And so the real task of uh, those of us who feel responsible for the future, who feel responsible for the next generation, is to make sure that people can have flow experiences in activities which are not destructive but are constructive, that are creative, that can lead to a better future. This is something that the philosopher Plato realized over 25 centuries ago when he said that the task of education, the major goal of education, is to teach young people to find pleasure in the right things. And we present young people with goals that we think are right, but they are not pleasurable. We don't teach them how to get pleasure from the right things. We think that they will learn how to use their mind. They will learn how to become useful citizens, even if it's a boring task. They won't do that. We have to make these things enjoyable. Otherwise, they will find enjoyment in alternatives which are destructive, violent, wasteful. Though flow can even become addictive in an activity which is productive and useful. For instance, I uh, referred often to surgeons as being people who really love their work. However, the danger there is that the job or the profession can be so enjoyable that you spend all of your life devoting yourself to developing the skills so that you can operate in that system of challenges, whether it's surgery or being a lawyer, being a computer expert, salesman, whatever. And nothing else interests you. You lose the ability to recognize opportunities outside your profession or, or job. At that point, the rest of life becomes very meaningless, very pale, insipid compared to the challenges that you find in your job. And this type of addiction to a single source of flow can be dangerous because at that point you miss possibilities that in the long run may be more important to you. For instance, you may miss the relationship with your other people. You will not have real friends. You may have a very barren marriage. Uh, your children may not have the advantage of your attention and the focus of your energies on them. And so you end up becoming essentially something like an idiosavant, a person who um, has only one little narrow area of expertise, a narrow area of enjoyment, 
And of course, the danger is that once you exhaust that, when you have to retire or when you can no longer do the job that produced enjoyment, then you're left with nothing. And that addiction is dangerous. So the cure for that or the way to prevent it is to be open to as many opportunities as possible as time and opportunity allows you and learn to appreciate enough of the various challenges that life surrounds us with so that if one of them begins to be less uh, rewarding or more difficult to achieve, then you have others to move on. How can flow make me more successful on my job? Well, I hate to directly try to answer that question because for two reasons. First, that success depends also on many things over which we don't have control. It depends on the state of the economy, the state of the particular business or line of work we are involved in. So nobody can promise external success to come from purely psychological processes. Certainly you can prepare yourself for being successful, you can work on it, but I could not promise that being able to experience flow, having a complex consciousness, will necessarily lead to success in financial or professional lines. However, having said that, it's certainly true that most successful people that I know, uh, and uh, recently I have had the good fortune of talking to a great number of them from successful scientists to artists to business leaders, politicians, all of them have gotten to where they are in large part because they were able to enjoy so much what they were doing. Usually, if you do a job well, but you don't enjoy it, you get up to a certain point, to the point where you feel comfortable, where you are getting a good income, when you get enough respect. Generally, that's where you stop, because doing anything more would not increase the external benefits that you are expecting from your job. To push beyond the status quo, to push beyond the level at which most people stop, you have to also enjoy what you're doing. And that is why so many of the successful people got to where they are, because they were motivated to push beyond the limits of the accepted performance, not because they wanted success, it's because they enjoyed what they were doing. They enjoyed doing scientific research, or they enjoyed the political process, they enjoyed the business uh, entrepreneurial activities that were involved in their business. And because they enjoyed it, they became successful. However, again, in the long run, the question is not so much whether you are going to be a rich businessman or a powerful politician. The important thing, the bottom line of life, really, is whether you feel good about yourself, whether you feel good about the life you're leading. Because success is ephemeral. It seems important, external success seems important when we don't have it. When we lack the money, we want more of it. If we lack power, we want power. But once you achieve these ends, you're back to square one. You either want more money or more power, 
or you find out that what you have gotten so far really hasn't made your life any better. So the bottom line, what makes life really worth living is what you experience along the way. How do you feel about what you do? How do you feel about yourself as you are pursuing a goal that makes sense, that is meaningful within the priorities that you have achieved? If this includes success in business, if they includes political power, fine. But then the reward is not what you get at the end. The reward is the use of your skills in pursuing financial success or political success as you are moving there. And if that's the attitude you learn to have, then generally what you will find that lo and behold, you get those outcomes almost as a byproduct. The success you achieve comes to you not because you wanted to get them, but because you did your job so well along the way, because you enjoy doing it. So the success will be there anyway. What's the most important element? Or what's the most important component of flow to have? That's a difficult question to answer in part because it seems to me that in order to have the fullness of experience, you have to have all of the eight elements that I described, uh, the setting of goals, the ability to read the feedback, concentration, avoidance of distraction, the feeling of unselfconsciousness, control, and finally, disappearance of the sense of time. These tend to be synergistic. They work together and reinforce each other. And all of these are, to a certain extent, important. In some activities, one or the other may be missing. In some activities, for instance, time is very much of the essence. So you may be very aware of time in those activities because it's part of the challenge. Uh, for instance, if you are a conductor of an orchestra or a surgeon, who is doing a very delicate operation, you have to do it within very severe time constraints. So time becomes a challenge, a part of the task that you have to learn to control. So in that case, since the time doesn't pass faster, but you are controlling your performance within time constraints. So that's an example when one of these elements may not be important. But basically, I would say that if you were to give a short summary of what is essential for flow, I would say they are those three elements that one has to have in order to develop an autotelic personality. Namely, first, the ability to set goals, to find goals even in activities that don't seem to have it. For instance, if your dishwasher can't work anymore and you have to wash the dishes by hand, you may set a goal even in that situation of what are you going to wash first, the glasses or the silverware or the plates? Once you decided that, that gives an order to your activities. It makes everything follow and flow in a way that it wouldn't have if you just started randomly to clean the first pieces that come into your hand. So even in a trivial activity like that, you always try to structure it, to give it shape, to give it form by giving it goals, but giving yourself goals within that activity. So that's the first step. The second step is to be aware of what's going on, to be able to pay attention and to be flexible in your attention. 
This is especially important these days when things happen to change so fast. You can't make sure that the goals you had developed when you were in college or high school or even as a young adult, whether those goals are realistic anymore. The economy changes, technology changes, the skills you were prepared to use as you prepared yourself for a productive career may be no longer state-of-the-art. In fact, they may no longer be applicable in the marketplace as it is now. So if you pay attention, if you are in sync, in touch with what goes on around you, you can move with the changes to the extent that you want to move. You don't have to be a weather wane and change with every change in fashion. In fact, that would be probably counterindicative for having flow. You have to maintain a kind of internal compass point. You have a life team, you want to pursue that. But how to get there, the means to realize your goals may have to change as the situation around you changes. So you won't know what is changing, what you have to do unless you pay attention, unless you are in touch with your environment. And then, as we said before, the third basic component, having goals, having paid attention, the third one is to find how can you use your skills within the situation as it is, the realistic situation, so as to solve the kind of problems, the challenges that are available to you. That means that you are able to identify the forces that impinge on you, that you can figure out how to retrain yourself if, for instance, your skills are no longer the ones that will get you to your goals given the change in the marketplace, that you understand how you have to vary your tactics in order to preserve the overall strategy, for instance, uh, by making sure that your living conditions, the address that you have, the kind of neighborhood you live in, the job you have, the friends you have, that these continue to support your goals rather than perhaps create obstacles that you didn't realize before. What differentiates flow? from the notion of just keeping busy. As the saying goes, the devil will find work for idle hands. In some ways, of course, this old wisdom that our uh, grandmothers had talking about having to always work was not so completely off. It perhaps was more responsive to how human psychology works than much of the modern contemporary emphasis on how you should fulfill yourself by either meditating or doing your own thing or not being hassled by anything and just being laid back and so forth. It may be more truthful to human psychology because it's true that when you are focused on an activity, we find that most people's consciousness falls in line with an effortless, spontaneous beam of concentrated energy, whereas when that doesn't happen, when you have nothing to do and there's no one around, then that energy is diffused and begins to go in circle and begins to feel as a source of disappointment to the person. However, having said that, 
It's also clear that simply mindless behavior that one takes refuge in because in order to avoid feeling depressed or feeling bored is not a cure either. In fact, some of the greatest flow experiences are by people who are not doing anything active with their hands or are not involved in any goal and task, but who can use their minds to pursue ideas, to pursue verse, to pursue philosophical reflection or a scientific theory or whatever organized mental activity that will achieve concentration within the mind and under the control of the person's consciousness. So what we are talking about in flow that is different from keeping busy is that in flow you are the master of your own consciousness. You are the master of your psychic energy. You choose the goals. You recognize the challenges and you choose which challenges to recognize and then find out whether responding to those challenges really results in an enjoyable activity. Usually it does. If it does not, then for heaven's sake, don't persevere in it just because it is a routine that keeps your mind away from other worse things. Switch, switch goals, switch challenges, switch skills until what you're doing begins to resonate in your consciousness as something that is enjoyable. You will recognize it. You will know when you're in flow. If you're not, you have tried the wrong thing. But it's only through trial and error that we learn which goals are the most appropriate to us. There are so many things you can try from learning the various cuisines of the world to all the music that has been written in the world to all the sports, all the skills that people have learned. In there, I'm sure you will find one which once you start acting and you say, yeah, this is for me. This is what I enjoy doing. This is my calling. The great gift of flow is that if you have learned to achieve this state, you will have outcomes that match the best that we can dream of having in this life. First of all, you will enjoy every minute of your life. Second, you will achieve personal growth. That is, your skills will expand, your goals become more and more important to you and to others. And the third outcome is that it's through flow experiences that culture evolves. It is through flow that we can build new forms of art, new technologies, new science, new and better relationship among people. So the evolution of personal abilities, the development of personal skills is the energy out of which the evolution of culture is made. If there is one legacy that we can live to the future knowing that we have contributed something positive to it, it is to live our lives as a constant source of flow. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.